watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here, Here comes the binge. binge. Hey everybody, welcome to the Binge 2019 Roundup, in which we look back at the year that was, I guess, and talk about <laughs> uh, our tops and bottoms huh. of that year. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Larte, and spoiler... Jason's the bottoms. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. <laughs> How's it going? Yeah, yeah, here we are. Uh, this is our, I guess, this is our fifth year um, doing a, a, an end of year review. Um, are we any wiser for the wear? Hard to say. Definitely not. Are we any more clear or concise when describing movies? Probably. <sighs> Probably not. Somehow worse. Yeah. Um, there has been a, a, a real-time de-evolution mm-hmm, that you've mm-hmm. all witnessed with us. So thanks for sticking it out, even though quality has not gone up. Mm-mm. And uh, output has gone down. Definitely. Uh, this year in particular, but I'm still happy about that decision. Uh, me too. <laughs> I think it's going great. <laughs> uh, so yeah, we are here to um, each go into our five favorite movies of the year. As well as our five least favorite movies of the year. And uh, so in total, we're going to be talking about 20 films today. But uh, we're going to try to keep that pace up. And uh, and maybe throw in some fights just to keep you all listening. (laughs) Uh, 2019, as we're taping this, it is three days from the end of the year. And three days from the end of the decade. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you think about that? Are you you into that mindset? Oh, very much. (laughs) Very much. Uh, I am somebody who creates nostalgia in real time as I'm living. I miss the beginning of the show. Really? I'm like, would you ever think that five years later we'd be sitting here still doing this? (laughs) That's how I think. Uh, So, yeah, I very much think about that. Although, I mean, I just saw a link to an article today that I did not read, um, which is, I'm very, I'm very much Tony Collette and eyes out. She's like, I read, <laughs> yes. I read a tweet about a New Yorker article about you. <laughs> so I'm very seen by that line. <laughs> so I read a headline today um, from an article in the Atlantic um, that was saying that basically like decades mean nothing this millennium. Because the the 10s were very much just a continuation of the aughts. And it's all just like one sort of sordid blur. Hmm. And uh, and I, I, I did not read further. So I can't elaborate. <laughs> but it was enough that made me go, I made the same sound you did. And I was like, oh, huh. Yeah, that feels right. Um, why does it feel right? Hard to say. But Hard to say. But the headline resonated with me. Because I, I, I do think that when you look at like... Looking back at the the decades through the 20th century, they do seem all very clearly defined. Is uh, it because you didn't? We didn't live through them. I well, no, even the ones the person writing, writing, writing. <laughs> De-evolution, everyone. In, in, there it is. Uh, how old the person writing it is. I wonder if it's harder to think of those demarcations when you're living through those times. Well, yeah, but I mean, we lived through the 80s and the 90s. You did. <laughs> Yeah, like I was blacked out the whole time. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm 19. <Yeah. laughs> so, but I mean, we you know those the 80s and 90s are very clearly uh, delineated from one another. Whereas it seems like the aughts and the 10s 
I think that, you know, we can look back now, especially at certain trends from the aughts, like the whole, you know, Ed Hardy trucker hat period and, ju- and juicy suits and all the looks that were captured so perfectly by hustlers, which we'll talk more <laughs> about later. Um, but yeah, I can see how I don't see such a huge difference between, um, yeah, between the aughts and the, and the teens. And granted, I think when we were in the 90s, we also weren't as aware that like, oh, okay, the things we're wearing right now are so 90s. Because of right, course, when right. the present moment, you're always just like, well, yeah, this is the normal way for us to all look right now. Right, right. And, and then by the next day, you're like, oof. Why did I, why did I wear those Jenkos? Yeah, yeah. Maybe it takes one more removed, right? Like maybe in the 80s or the 90s, you weren't as clear the difference between the 80s and the 90s. But like in the 2000s, you were like, oh, those were the 80s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And like 80s nights was a thing. And yeah. It became, you're able to, able to package up the 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 aesthetic and, and the time the time better right, I don't but, know but then even about. musical trends even I didn't li- even read the the <laughs> link to the article so I don't know uh, yes I liked that this is enough to get us to fight about just a headline <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll keep going down this as long as we want to we were talking about the economy earlier we were we were having a much more sophisticated sounding conversation about no, the economy but it wasn't I don't think we were, was- I think it sounded like two people who don't know what they're talking about talking about something <laughs> which I guess is the show yeah which is to say it was Rebecca and I talking we were warming up you're all <laughs> we were we were and now we are we are feeling fully we're full full of our own ignorance <laughs> ready to weigh in the subjects on which we are not experts uh, so uh, end of 2019 Rebecca looking back what are some of your uh, your highlights from the year oh are you giving me that rose and thorn thing if you want to do in a rose and a thorn, that is up to you. <laughs> or you can just focus on the rose because we don't need more negativity. Um, I feel like this year, I'm only going to compare it to last year, which I feel generally better. I don't know if it's because we've made some headway impeachment wise mm. um, or that, you know, just seeing the Democratic candidates out there rem- remind you that there are other, you know, the politics is something that's changing, uh, hopefully, <laughs> or that has it's supposed to change. There's supposed to be uh, more of a conversation than just this like onslaught of, of Trump news over and over again. Um, so that that was a highlight of the year, I think. Huh. So you're going, you're going big picture. You're going political. Nothing, nothing on a personal front. Any any personal highlights of the year? Um. Wow. Our friendship. I don't know. What do you want? <laughs> what are you fishing for here? You know, things you did this year that were highlights of the year for you. Yeah. Um. Uh. Um, it has been a, a good year full of um, full of fun. You? you know, it's the details that make your story so relatable. <laughs> and that's Everyone why, knows. And that's why I appreciate you. Um, yeah, I mean, my highlights of the year have included not one but two cruises, uh, one of which was with you. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I was intentionally not making that up as I a highlight. I was going to bring up the cruise. No, I really have a hard time remembering things. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know what happened this year. That was a good one. I really enjoyed that cruise. Yes, our time in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. Uh, good times. And, uh, I mean, the unequivocal highlight of my year was getting to play the role of Damien in Peaches Christ Mean Gaze stage show in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Wow, that was this year. That was this year. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that was in February. And that was one of the top five greatest experiences of my entire life, let alone of just this year. So, wow. so looking back, I feel like that was really, I feel like I really hit like a, a personal pinnacle mm-hmm. of, uh, of, of sort of San Francisco achievement. Like if you had told me when I moved here 14 years ago that someday I'd actually be in a Peter's Christ show, 
I would be like, it's going to take 14 years for me to be in a Peter's Christ <laughs> show? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly should be easier than that. Um, but it wasn't. It took 14 years. Uh, and I did it, and it was a crowning moment. And I couldn't be more thankful for it. So um, politically, I am much less hopeful. So oh, okay. <laughs> I am skeptical and dubious. So I'm not feeling good about anything uh, in that regard. I am just cool. battening down the hatches. I think I'm just happy to see Larry David play Bernie Sanders on Saturday Night Live. Sure. Every week. <laughs> it's the little things, you know. Uh, I probably am feeling mo more shaken because yesterday for the first time, I heard somebody tell me in person that they are a Tulsi Gabbard fan. What? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why? What was their reasoning? Uh, because they are anti-establishment. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> they are first and foremost Yang Gang, but if not Yang Gang, they are Tulsi. Wow. Okay. Well. So yeah. Yeah. So that's why I don't list that as a as a highlight uh, for how I'm doing this year. Wait, yeah. Thank you. I'm glad that part of your highlights was to shit on my one highlight. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that. Yes. Just to set up the the format with which we will proceed for the rest <laughs> of the show. One of us will say something, and the other one will then shit on that thing. How do you feel about movies in general this year? I think it's been a horrible year. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> I think it's been a dreadful, dreadful year for movies. Um, and uh, But there were a few good ones. So at least enough for us to talk about on this episode. Mm -hmm. But overall, it's been horrible. Yeah, so. it really hasn't been that exciting, huh? No, no. I mean... Scraping together even a top five felt like a challenge. It was kind of a challenge. Yeah, like like some of some of some of the picks that you'll hear from us today are downright surprising because they're <laughs> they are kind of left field because it's like really that and it's like yeah it's been a shitty year. I think you picked one trailer. And you know, listen, not the actual movie, but the trailer. No, for it. you know, if a trailer is good, a trailer is good. Um, and you know, I think that yeah, it's been it's been one of those years where, woof. Uh, you know, movie trends are, are are looking down and, you know, just tons and tons and tons of sequels and remakes and franchises and that kind of stuff. And certainly those can be good. But uh, but yeah, it was it was it was bleak. It was kind of a bleak, dismal year. And yeah, just to, it was just scraping to try to fill out a top five, which is not to take away from the films that we are going to celebrate today. Right. But but yeah, it was just it was bleak. I felt like there were uh, a good number of films that I would have put into like the five through ten category i uh -huh. feel like picking the top five was a little hard mm -hmm. um but there are some movies that didn't make it into our top ten that i felt like were still good movies worth seeing things like queen and slim um portrait of lady on fire they they i couldn't put them in a top five right but i, but I honey boy um yeah there were some know. some great sort of fringe titles and i was gonna say also um you know you're not gonna hear us talk about some of the movies that are the biggest stories that are appearing the most on the top of awards lists and critical lists, such as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, right. Such as The Irishman, such as Joker, such as The Two Popes. Look, <laughs> I almost put it on there, but <laughs> I, I thought, thought you you'd might. give me shit about it. Let me just say... Two just, Popes falls into that five to ten category. You should see it for I, sure, but I can't put it on my top five. Yeah. I will, I will say, on the subject of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood... I, which is also called Two Popes. <laughs> which is also called The Two Popes. <laughs> yeah. I will say that I, um, in the last week, I had both my mother and Scott watch that movie with, with no prejudice aforethought from me. And they both had the exact same reaction watching it independently, which was, 
what the fuck was that? <laughs> that was so fucking dumb. <laughs> and like watching a second time with my mother, I was like ready to, I was like geared up. I was like, okay, like this is everyone's favorite movie of the year. This is the movie that my critic circle named as the movie of the year. Mm. Um, surely I'm missing something here. And then I watched it a second time and I had like the exact same reaction I had the first time. Which was, you know, like, I, I appreciate elements of it. But overall, I think it's like a big shrug. Mm. Um, so, and I was once again really turned off by the finale. Yeah, yeah. So, I, 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 you are not going to hear us talk about that. It's still on my worst list. But, like, I am just genuinely befuddled by the ongoing extreme passion that people have for this movie. Like, there are people at our film critic circle voting meeting that were like, I have watched this movie eight times. I can't what? stop watching it. What? It is a masterpiece. And I don't understand. I and, and and they are like, well, yeah, it's okay if you just don't get it. Just say I don't get it. But then, of course, you're like, oh, how fucking dare you? Oh, my. I'm like getting all yeah. riled up. <laughs> They're like, what you just need to understand is that's a fairy tale. Margot Robbie's a princess. And so I tried watching it from that point of view. And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense either. It does not so. make any sense. I watched, um, you know how they have, like, Wired does those little videos of, like, you know, uh, uh, language experts breaks down, you know, translations in movies or, like, a weapons expert breaks mm-hmm. down weapons in movies. And it was that one. It was a weapons one. And it was, like, a, a prop master and a weapons expert, like, historical weapons mm-hmm. expert. And, they, and one of the movies they talked about was Kill Bill. And they were talking about, like, the katana. And, all that. and it was just, like, watching segments of Kill Bill gave me the feeling that I was hoping so much to feel right. in a Quentin Tarantino film mm-hmm. that reminded me of the disappointment that was Once Upon a Time yeah. in Hollywood. Yeah, no. I mean, even even people were like, oh, well, no, you just need to understand that it's a fairy tale and also you need to understand that most of it is like fantasies in the guy's heads. I'm like, well, these are boring fucking fantasies. Super boring. Jesus. I truly don't understand the enthusiasm for that movie in no. the slightest. Did you um, watch The Irishman? Uh, yeah, I saw The Irishman. Um, I, saw, I watched it once in a theater because I knew if I watched it at home, I'd be on my phone the entire time. Mm-hmm. And? And, uh, I yeah, I would have been on my phone the entire time. Yep. Um, it's fine. It's fine. It's not a masterpiece. Uh, it feels like it's very sedate. It, 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 it starts at a very low simmer, and it stays at that exact low simmer for the entire three and a half hours. Um, you know, I think I've, I've said that it's like, you know, it feels like it's like Goodfellas on lithium. You know, like <laughs> it's the kind of movie that you would expect Martin Scorsese to be making 30 years after Goodfellas. But we know from The Wolf of Wall Street that he can make a much more energetic right. three hour epic uh, than this. And of course, like that was about a totally different set of characters who were younger and wilder. And so it made sense that movie felt very young and wild. This is about aging gangsters. And so it feels about, you know, aging gangsters. I but- mean, if you've been like just following politics. You can find an aging gangster in the White House. It's very exciting. (laughs) We've got Lev. We got Igor. You know, they're all right there. They're all right there. Like you don't need to also watch The Irishman. And it sounds like it'd be much more dynamic. Yeah, no, like it's the actual news is much more exciting than The Irishman is. And then we reviewed Joker on this show, and you might recall that we were not fans. (sighs) So that almost made it to my bottom list. Did it? No, but it almost did. Yeah. Um, so those are some of the big movies that we will not be talking about today. <laughs> um, but, uh, there are movies that we will be talking about. So, uh, should we get should started we get with started? those? Yeah. So, um, the first best movie is, uh, one of your picks and it's Parasite. Parasite. So this is the Bong Joon-ho social satire. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. I remember I went to go see it at TIFF, dang, on the first day that I was there. And I was really confused when it started because I thought that it was going to be like a creature feature. Mm. 
because I hadn't really read anything about it aside from headlines and <laughs> and it's called Parasite and I was like oh okay this is going to be about like some sort of monster and then I'm watching it I'm just watching this like really sort of like brilliantly funny wicked social satire unfold and I'm just like well this is great but where's the monster capitalism ah uh, yes capitalism was the monster all along mm-hmm. and there were two pairs of footprints in the sand <laughs> and the other one was capitalism's <laughs> Um, so this was a movie that we have reviewed in the show. Uh, I believe you were also a fan of this film. This is my number one of the year. This is, you know, this is, this is my number one. This is to me the best movie of the year. Um, it was the movie that went up against once upon a time in Hollywood at my critic circle voting meeting. It was the finalist in, in pretty much all those top categories against once upon a time. Sometimes it bested it. Other times it didn't. Unfortunately, in best picture, it lost. Mm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, and this is a movie that I think is just, well, and one of the weird lines of argument that was made, uh, sort of in the zero hour as we were all reaching our, like the limit of our wits at that voting meeting, um, when we were talking about best film, which was the last category, somebody was like, well, the thing about Parasite is that, you know, you watch it once and like, you get it. You watch it once. It's perfectly made, perfectly constructed, but it's all like right there. You know, you watch it and you're like, okay, like I'm totally understanding it. And at the end of it, you totally understand everything you just watched and you get it. But once upon a time in Hollywood, you can watch multiple times and each time have a totally different experience of it and, and see totally different things you didn't notice before. And, and like, I didn't really have the words at the time to push back. But then, like, later that day, of course, like, mm-hmm. you know, like, hours after I'd left, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Once Upon a Time is a better movie because it's rambling and incoherent and episodic, and it doesn't make sense when you watch it? That's what makes it a better movie than Parasite because Parasite's too perfect? What kind of fucking argument is that? So Also, that's assuming you'd even want to watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a second time. Yeah. I, I could never. I would never want to say Hearing that you watched it again, yeah, <laughs> I, I felt my heart break for you. <laughs> Thank you. I could never want to watch that movie again. Yeah, um, I don't understand. So, uh, but yeah, I think Parasite is is absolutely genius. I truly hope that it is nominated for Best Picture because you know very few foreign films are nominated mm. for Best Picture, and um, it seems unlikely that it's going to win. Hopefully, at the very least, it will win Best Foreign Film. But it is just to me, it is it is perfection. It's my favorite film of Bong Joon Ho's. He is somebody who I've never, I've always appreciated, but he's, I've always been kind of at arm's length with his stuff. Like mm. Snowpiercer kept me at arm's length. Oaksha kept me at arm's length. <laughs> Sorry to even say that word in front of you. <laughs> and, you know, and I think that, I think I talked about in our review that like those movies had like this element of like the visual grotesquerie in both mm. of those movies really kept me at arm's length. Like I was just like, like grossed out by both of them. Um, but this one uh, is still gross and grotesque in its own way, but just purely through human behavior mm-hmm. um, in just everyday settings. So, uh, you know, it's. I think we we said that it was best to know as little as possible about this movie before seeing it. So I still don't want to get too much into the story. But uh, suffice to say, it's my number one movie of the year, and I think it's a masterpiece. And it's it's definitely yeah the highlight of 2019's movie calendar for me personally. That brings us to our second movie, um, which would be my number one pick of the year, which is Jojo Rabbit. Um, we also talked about this one on the podcast, mm, I believe. Did. Um, you didn't feel quite uh, as strongly about it. Would it have made it into your top five? So we kind of made 
top fives a little back and forth in a in a list and some of them that i pick i picked i i didn't put on the list because jason had already so we there's a little negotiating there so we need to do a little discussion about whether or not right parasite would have been on mine although i do need to see it again um something i feel more arm's length about it for some reason um maybe it's because it came with so much hype mm. you're supposed to like it and then you know, there's always like an inevitable either disappointment or like you need to kind of recollect your own perspective on it. So I and I sure. and I really want to see it again. Um, Jojo Rabbit, would it have made it onto your top five? No. Oh, wow. Okay. Then I guess that we're over. <laughs> no, not my, not my top five no. or my top ten. Um, <laughs> but uh, but please go on. <laughs> right, right, right in the gut, right in the gut. <laughs> I think this movie is uh, first of all, it's beautiful. I think it's wonderfully acted. I think it. Making a comedy starring Hitler is tricky, and it's done well. The intent is uh, so, so clearly, you know, not disrespectful. It doesn't minimize the severity or the awfulness of Nazism and Hitler. Um, it, sh I think, it shows a very relevant story to right now, which is you know, little boys who like swastikas and uniforms and want to belong, and how that can corrupt you into becoming, you know part of a system that is I hate to use the word evil um, and it shows how having experiences that are difficult can you know further project somebody uh, as, as um, uh, he, he has a facial injury and he feels even more ostracized he becomes kind of stronger in the in his his beliefs about Nazism and then you know getting to know people and understanding that uh, these stereotypes and prejudices are you know so far from the reality of knowing people that are different from you and uh, having a very, very sad and hard lesson uh, taught to him. I don't know. It feels incredibly relevant. It, it's hilarious. Um, it's my top movie of the year. Yeah, I, I like this movie. Uh, it just didn't quite crack that kind of year-end list for me. But I definitely appreciate it as an allegory for all the reasons that you're stating. And I tried unsuccessfully to get uh, my to get Scott's family to watch it just yesterday. Mm. Um, we had uh, we had just watched Missing Link, which turns out, by the way, Missing Link is great. Really? Yeah, it's huh. really funny. It's that's really, the animated, like the yeah, so the, the like uh, yeah, the like uh, um, animation studio uh -huh. stop motion, really really good. Um, and then I was like, let's also watch because he has a young niece and nephew, and I was <laughs> like, and I was like, yeah, let's watch Jojo Rabbit, and they're just like, movies are boring, and then they ran out of the room. So. <laughs> Uh, so I, I, I tried. I really did. It was one of three non-family screeners we brought back. Well, I brought back that, uh, Little Women, and Knives Out. And we watched everything but Jojo Rabbit. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but I, I do want to watch it again and see if I warm up to it anymore. It's possible the first time I watched it, I was holding it to, you know, like the buzz standard, like mm. you were talking about with Parasite. But maybe in my mind, because it was Taika Waititi, I was thinking about his previous work, and I was thinking it was going to be like a little bit more like... A sophisticated adult in its humor and I was surprised at how kind of like sentimental it ultimately really felt mm -hmm. but um but yeah I do want to watch it again and um you know to watch it separate from my initial kind of holding to my expectations screening of it yeah so. I, I I would like to hear your thoughts after that yeah I think it's a very clever way of uh introducing an audience to a, a perspective of someone who can be uh, fallen fallen prey to uh, authoritarian figures and um, you know how possible it is to break through the humanity of people and, and make them see other perspectives yes amen 
Amen. Uh, movie number three, Jason, your top five. This would also go in my top five. Uh, Hustlers. Hustlers. This was the year of Hustlers. It, uh, or at the very least, it's been the fall, the fall and mm. winter of Hustlers. Ever since it came out in September, uh, this has been the little movie that could. Uh, this, this, this has been one of the great success stories of the year. Uh, this was included on Variety's recently recent roundup of the year's biggest box office hits, where it was you know sort of leveraging what a movie's uh, you know budget was versus what it grossed. Mm-hmm. And you know, Hustlers was like I believe a twenty million dollar budget, and its current gross is somewhere around one hundred seventy five million. Wow! And I mean, for a movie that's female written and directed, that is all about the lives of women of color, sex workers, strippers, like this is. This is a this is just a remarkable triumph for inclusive storytelling, mm-hmm. um, you know, in front of and behind the camera. And, you know, in addition to just how easy it is to get behind it politically, it's also just a good time. It's just a really good, fun movie to mm-hmm. watch. And in the people that it's outraged are the worst people, and that's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's it's absolutely, a good litmus test. Yeah, it really, really is. Um, you know, the people who were offended by it. It says so much more about them than it does about the movie. Mm. Uh, you know, this is uh, you know this is a movie that changed the way that we all think about Jennifer Lopez. You know, <laughs> this well, is, you also saw her in con- was that this year that you saw her in concert no, that changed the way you see was, Jennifer Lopez. It was last year. Um, it was yeah, spring 2018 is is whenever I had seen her in Vegas, mm. and I mean that it didn't so much. I think the thing that was different about that was that was more of a reminder to me mm. about like what a performer she is and how many hit singles she has because I was like <laughs> they were like 20 of them in the show and I was like I know every word to all of these songs. Um, and so I was like, oh yeah, she doesn't really get taken seriously enough as a musical performer. And I think what Hustlers did was it also reminded us that she is a great actor. Mm. And that's something that we have not thought about since the 90s, really, since she was first introduced to us in like Selena and Out of Sight. And it was like, oh, who is this great talent? And then she, you know, made the choice to focus more on studio romantic comedies for the better part of this millennium. And no one took her seriously. And then this movie came out and it was like, holy shit, here she is again. This is the actress who we all first like noticed all those years ago. Mm-hmm. And this movie has turned her into, because she's the kind of you know superstar level that we take for granted and that we don't take seriously. And this movie and the conversation around it forced us to reconsider somebody who we all thought we had all made up our minds about. Ah, yeah. And I, and I think that's what's so remarkable about what she achieved and what the movie achieves. And, uh, and God willing, she's going to get, at the very least, an Oscar nomination, if not an actual Oscar win for this movie, which will be, uh, I can't even, like, I, I keep fantasizing about that moment. I'm trying to, like, manifest it by picturing, like, Laura Dern's crushed face uh, <laughs> when they announced that Jennifer Lopez just, is the winner. Laura Dern's face. Which is just that. It's just her face. It's not her fault. What, what is it? It's for Marriage Story? For Marriage Story, yeah. What? I know. And that's, and that's what makes me think, like, because uh, if it was anyone else playing Laura Dern's role in Marriage Story, even if they were as good or better than she was, it would not be, like, a presumptive frontrunner. It's because it's Laura Dern, and she's never won an Oscar, and she's due, and she's on the board for, like, the Academy Museum, and it's just like, yeah, like what? there's conflicts of she interest. Saw Baby Yoda at a basketball game. <laughs> <laughs> and to be clear, Laura Dern is a delight. But like that performance, it doesn't hold a candle to what J-Lo achieves in Hustlers. No, I would have rather seen Holly Hunter in that role anyway. Ooh, that would have been fun. 
that would have made me in a, I was in a really tough spot <laughs> uh, in that in that situation. Would that have been great? Uh, it would have been. But uh, but you know we we did give um, J Lo our best supporting actress award for the film critic circle. Mm-hmm. It did come down to her and Laura Dern. Uh, and uh, and I I tested the waters with my like anti Dern narrative, um, <laughs> and it worked. So and I heard two fucking what idiots your... in the film critic circle speak out against Hustler. So what I got is to... your anti Dern narrative? My anti Dern narrative um, is that you know she's great. She's always been great. She's great in everything. She's great in Marriage Story, but. The character she plays in Marriage Story is very mm. similar to her character in Big Little Lies. It doesn't show very much range of versatility. Whereas J-Lo and Hustlers is J-Lo as we've never seen her before. Mm-hmm. And even just, even it's, it shows the range of versatility when viewed against her entire career. And even just within the film. Because her character, Ramona, mm. uh, goes through such a journey. And we see so many different sides and dimensions to her. So many different kinds of emotional beats. Uh, we see her on top. We see her at the bottom. We see her... Upside in- down. <laughs> we do see her upside down. We see her fully invert. Uh, <laughs> it is just a brilliant performance. And, uh, and you know, and I think, you know, you guys know we've talked a lot about Lorene Scafaria because she is a friend. And this is such a triumph for her. And I couldn't be prouder. And I'm hoping against hope that she manages to make the adapted screenplay cut at the Oscars because she fully deserves to be there. If you haven't, I recommend also going and reading the original uh, magazine article, uh, The Hustlers at Scores, which it's, which inspired this movie. So there are three movies that came out this year that were inspired by uh, articles. It's the Mr. Rogers one, mm-hmm. this one, and Dark Waters. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a good year for journalistic adaptations into quality films because all three of those movies are very good. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Hustlers, if you haven't seen it yet, what are you waiting for? <laughs> uh, it's also available on planes. <laughs> yeah, it's on planes. It's great. I was on a plane recently and I like glanced through the seats of the person in front of me and I saw J Lo stripping. <laughs> I was like, huh, how about that? Um, all right, number four. These are not in actually any particular order. They- I guess they kind of are for me. Are they in a specific order for you? Yeah, I guess they're kind of in my... Yeah, we're kind of doing an alternating top five here. Kind of, yeah. So um, it's more like Rebecca's number two is... <laughs> Hail Satan? <laughs> here the we question go. marks in the title, not in the statement. Hail Satan. We watched a, a, a lot of good documentaries this year. Um, One Child Nation, For Sama, uh, the um, Aretha Franklin. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. Linda um, Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mr. Rogers one came out last year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I watched it this year. <laughs> but um, Hail Satan. Uh, <laughs> we have this like tiny uh, little running joke here is that when I'm supposed to see a movie for the week, <laughs> I just end up watching Hail Satan again. And then I want to watch the newest movie. Uh, I watched this movie a couple of times this year. <laughs> Jason, you also gave this one a, a very glowing review. Yeah. I think it was our pick of the week though, when it came out. Uh, oh, yeah, it was. Uh, it's a documentary about the Church of Satan um, here in America, and it is it's a it's a story I, I think we're not primed to to understand um, how political this ends up being, um, how this is basically set up a group of people as uh, antagonists to what has become an increasing amount of influence or. Uh, um, 
marketing by the government to include uh, Christianity into the way the government is run. And it, it kind of breaks down the history of that. And it talks about this group of folks who um, are using this Church of Satan as a, a way to fight that being part of our, um, our, the way our government runs. And I think that it is a noble cause. I think that they also kind of adopt this belief system that is hard to deny, aligns with what you would think the, the perfect setting of any of the, the major world religions would, would believe in. Um, it, it doesn't point out, you know, believers or non-believers as, as bad guys, just, you know, certain people who try to manipulate belief systems for their own political gain. Um, so I find it to be, I found it to be pretty inclusive and just like an interesting story of ingenuity, um, some tales of you know, infighting, which is fun mm-hmm. and, uh, it has some, uh, unforgettable characters that are, that are profiled. It does. You know, I feel like it's almost a cautionary tale for American Christianity, uh, that like, if you are failing at your job so completely as mm. evangelical Christianity is failing currently, especially with its support of Trump, then literal Satanists are going to swoop <laughs> in and become the Christian superheroes that you are failing to be. Yeah. Uh, in terms of advocating for actual Jesus-based biblical values of of freedom and of equality and of compassion mm-hmm. and of truth. Like, like this is like truly based on this documentary it seems like the church of satan is doing god's work (laughs) uh that was my takeaway from watching hail satan and you know and it seems like they're one of the only groups that we can look to during these times (laughs) to to be fighting the good fight and that is a remarkable thing it really Um, shows just like you know language the how people react to words like satan um without you know without the context of what what they are seeing as the opposite the good opposite of satan doing i don't know it's really breaks down the difference between action and and words i think Mm -hmm. yeah it does do that and it does it in just a really entertaining way and uh, you know to your point there is you know, there's no infighting quite as funny as Satanist infighting. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's just, it, you know, it's that best kind of documentary that introduces you to a subculture you didn't really know existed. And um, and yeah, a whole cast of characters that are doing surprisingly heroic work that you probably didn't even know was happening. So uh, in, 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 in somehow the most patriotic movie of the year. It really is. Like far and away, one of the most patriotic movies I've probably ever seen. And I think regardless of where you stand, um, it, it, in terms of religion, you could it, do some self-exploration about what you believe and why um, as a result of this movie, and I, it, it will do you good. Yeah, agreed. Wonderful. Jason, this is your number three, The Farewell. The Farewell. Uh, so this is Lulu Wang's film starring Aquafina as a, a young woman who, uh, with her family, returns to China upon learning that her grandmother is, uh, is dying but they are not culturally uh, supposed to tell her that. Uh, and so they go back under the ruse of a wedding. Uh, one of her cousins is being forced into a quickie wedding with his, with his, <laughs> with his Japanese girlfriend uh, to justify this giant family reunion um, while everyone is hand-wringing behind the scenes when, uh, when Nai Nai, uh, her grandmother, is not present. And Nai Nai is just indomitably plowing forward, uh, <laughs> taking control of all details of wedding planning 
and uh, you know haranguing uh, caterers, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while Aquafina's character is just sort of caught in this impossible predicament of of wanting to be able to grieve her grandmother and to connect with her and to um, have a meaningful goodbye without actually being able to say goodbye. Um, and I've I've heard people say you know that they didn't want to watch this because they thought it was going to be sad. And I know at least one person who did find it to be unbearably sad when they watched it. Really? But uh, but to me, it's it's you know it's 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 emotional. It's mm-hmm. very much it's an emotional movie, but it's hilarious um, first and <laughs> foremost. And um, and I think that you know the emotion that that it has is very much earned. Uh, Rebecca, you just watched this I last just night. Just watched it. Yeah. Um, I also was surprised at. Um, frankly, how not sad it was. Yeah, uh, it's difficult, um, but it I, maybe it's because you are also kind of caught up in this um, this lie, the charade of of the moments of of being touching are almost kind of you know, sometimes rushed because then you have to kind of sweep that under the rug and pretend that everything's okay. Right. Um, I found it incredibly insightful. Um, Kind of similarly, this is gonna, hopefully this doesn't sound terrible, but to Crazy Rich Asians where you can see some generational qualities of, you know, um, thought and how they contrast with what is like stereotypical American thought about individuality and, and you know, being part of a whole. Um, I found that to be very interesting and something that I don't know a lot about, about, you know, my friends that, and um, neighbors, the Chinese-American neighbors, mm-hmm. how that conflict exists within them and their families. Um, but yeah, I didn't find it overwhelmingly sad. Right. Right. And it does, you know, like no spoilers, but you know, like it doesn't, it, you know, the ending is not the crushing blow that you're expecting. It is an, uh, in an, un, an unexpectedly buoyant uh, ending mm. of the movie. And uh, I mean, it was just to me, this is and this is, you know, loosely inspired by, you know, it's by a true story. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think that this is just an example of Lulu Wang doing that thing that it's the best thing for filmmakers to do where, you know, for writer directors of just looking around and not seeing a story that you resonate with or, and being like, well, I'm going to tell that story then. And then um, she told the story. And even though it is so incredibly specific it is still somehow relatable because we all know what it's like to have those complicated family relationships and things that you're not supposed to say. Mm. Uh, and so even though in this, it's a very specific thing and it sounds incredibly outlandish, but it's actually a real thing. Um, it still somehow comes through. And, you know, we see like this, this, this really richly drawn extended family, you know, with aunts Definitely. and uncles and cousins and great aunts and, uh, you know, and, and in, you know, the vast majority of the film is not in English, uh, mm-hmm. but still it, you, in, the, in the performances, it all, all, every piece of the emotion, whether the laughs, the tears, it all comes through so brilliantly. So this is a movie that, yeah, I haven't stopped thinking about since I saw it over the summer. And every time that I've gone back to think about like the best movies of the year, the farewell is always right at the top of the list, right there in the top. So, um, so that it was, this was a, a no brainer. For top five inclusion <laughs> for me for sure yeah i like how you noted the the richly drawn characters in the extended family and and in her immediate family even it's not mm-hmm. just the story of this you know this lie in the dying grandmother but um what are the dynamics that happen between the brothers and sisters uh how her mom processes grief and and the individual parts of the family and structure of those relationships how they are maybe 
exacerbated or tested by this like mm-hmm. you know scenario but um nothing's nothing's wasted no character's wasted there's interesting yeah. conversation that happens between between uh, brother and sisters about immigration whether you know america is better or china is better it's very relatable family mm-hmm. dynamics yeah the dynamics are very lived in this is a movie that sadly it's starting to look like aquafina is not going to be nominated for best actress wow um she's getting squeezed out by fucking cynthia Erivo for harriet who is suddenly making like all the best actress shortlist? I think she got a SAG. Uh, no, the SAG. Yeah, the SAG nominations came out. I think she's nominated the SAGs, and and, and we were and we'll talk about Harriet later. Huh. But we were guess pr- when we were pretty aligned that Cynthia Erivo and Harriet was by no means a great performance. No, and somehow she is making the cut in best actress, and Aquafina is now being pushed out as like an outlier. That's a bummer. And like I was as shocked as anyone whenever I first found myself saying that Aquafina should be nominated for an Oscar because you hate her name. Because I do hate her name. Um, but God damn it. She is so fucking good in this movie. Like this is not a performance that anybody could have expected from her at this point in her career. And it is, it is just brilliant. Agreed. Um, Aquafina beating JLo. Different categories. Oh, different categories. Right. Yeah. Never they can mind. both win. They I want them both to win. win. Yeah. That's a party. That's that, an after that, party. That is an after party. That's a dance off right there. <laughs> All right. Now we're on to movie number one. Five. <laughs> Watch me count, uh, which is my movie number three. <laughs> oh, no. We're getting all confused. Oh, boy. Um, Knives Out. I think we talked briefly about this one in uh, the last episode where I said it was great. And then you said, right. yeah, I didn't even want to talk about it because it's so great. Why even waste time? Everyone knows it's wonderful. Right. Crowd pleaser. Crowd pleaser. It is. Um, I think that that brings it to the to the top list. Would you would you put it in the top five? No, it's not in my top ten. Um but I am still a fan. I will say that I had a, I had a dispiriting experience trying to show this movie to Scott's family uh, a few days ago. On I think it was on Christmas Day, and um, I was in the living room filled with his extended family, and they just, you know, just want to put something on. And so I was like, I'll put on Knives Out. So I put on Knives Out, and it's it's a big family this gathering uh, at Scott's family's house, and the movie. The movie was was sort of summarily talked over in its entirety mm. and then denounced as boring um, by <laughs> the people who were talking over it, uh, which, of course, infuriated me. Um, but what it made me realize is that this is a movie I hadn't realized how dialogue heavy Ooh, the movie yeah. is. Like it's so so don't learn from my mistake. Don't ever think this is like a party movie to put on, um, because even though it's very fun and quick and lighthearted, well, not lighthearted, but, you know, it's just it's very fleet footed as a movie. Um, and very sort of, uh, yeah, buoyant. I'll use that word again. Uh, it is all dialogue. It is. It's, there a, it's like are a play. Like, there are like two action scenes at the very end. And aside from that, it is all dialogue. And yeah, it is It is a little bit stagey in that way. But in a way that's knowing. Because like those these kinds of whodunits, it's like Clue. Right, You know, right. It, it's, it's, it's as stagey as Clue. And nobody ever says, I don't like Clue. It's too stagey. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's part of the point of the genre. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that was my one takeaway was that, okay, this is not, this is a, a bad movie to watch with a room full of people who are all talking and B, it's also a bad movie to watch in a house with dogs because, <laughs> <laughs> because I was in a house with four dogs and every single time the dogs in the movie oh. barge, all four dogs just lost their fucking minds <laughs> and we would just have to wait for five minutes for them to all calm down and to stop thinking that they were like being invaded by neighbor dogs or whatever, <laughs> whatever goes on in dog brains. But anyway. Back to you. So, <laughs> in spite of the fact that it is not a party movie or a movie for dogs, <laughs> it still made it into my top five somehow. Oh, um, the erasure in your list. <laughs> I'm 
incredible. Uh, it's clever. It's well acted. The dialogue is hilarious. Um, as you mentioned in, when we talked about it before, it, it doesn't escape also having a very uh, pointed uh, point of view about white wealth mm. and, um, I don't know, uh, dormant racism or, uh, you know, yeah, like barely there. My favorite running joke in the movie is is how everybody oh. has it, thinks that Marta is a different nationality. Yeah, from Paraguay. Yeah, or, Ecuador. Um, it's it's witty. It's funny. It's incredibly acted. It's also it's beautiful. Like it mm-hmm. is it is stagey in in that it doesn't change scenes a whole bunch. But every the costuming, the house is gorgeous. Um, it is just end to end exciting and fun and clever. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 definitely a total treat, real gem, and uh, it it would be an outlier for my top ten list, but it would it was a contender. Uh, it's yeah, great movie. Jason, your number whatever is <laughs> the last black man in San Francisco. Yes, uh, so of course you know, just given the movie setting, I am more you know we are more inclined to care mm. about the story that it's telling than perhaps the average. Uh, film fan um but i think that even without that kind of you know local backyard perspective this is a movie of just such originality Mm. and such poetry such visual poetry such unexpected character dynamics um you know and it, it does tell ultimately a relatable story about sort of when you have to sort of let your home go like having a complicated relationship with the place you call home and what you do when the time comes to have to say goodbye to it. So it feels almost like it really feels it feels like a parable. It has that kind of like almost like fairy tale parable quality to it. Mm. Um, you know, even like sort of like the chorus of the chorus of guys who stand outside. Right. Um, you know, it, it just has these different devices that it makes really clever, unexpected use of. It's an odyssey. Yeah, it's like an odyssey, all these different archetypes, um, all done in really interesting, fresh ways. And, you know, this is a directorial debut by Joe Talbot. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he co-wrote it with the star of the movie, Jimmy Fails. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, this is this is a movie that captures a moment in time for San Francisco. This is a movie that shines a light on the ongoing sort of hot-button issue of the ever-dwindling African-American population in San Francisco. Um, and it does it without turning into a polemic i think we talked about that Mm. in our initial review is that you know going into this movie i thought it was going to just be full of rage i thought it was gonna be a really angry movie about like the death of san francisco Mm. about you know the the tech gentrification of of the city of you know of the the sort of racist housing policies like i thought it was going to be just a, a total like just railing rallying cry um, but it is not that it is, it is, it is a movie that is, it's very melancholy. Uh, it's not trying, it's not fighting in that way. It's sort of, it's just really personal. It's a really, per- it feels very personal. It feels not resigned, but it's not, it's not like agitprop, mm-hmm. you know, it's just a really, it's a really personal story. And, uh, and it has some, some of the most beautiful photography you'll see in any film this year. Gorgeous. The, the final shots in particular are, are just jaw dropping and uh yeah i'm a really big fan and uh and this is a movie that i think probably was covered a great deal more in our in the bay area than it was uh nationally or certainly internationally um so but uh if you didn't hear as much about it where you live we do recommend that you seek it out 
Yeah, and and I think that I can't tell if, if having it be in San Francisco worked to its advantage or not because it is such a you know hot button issue of gentrification and displacement and tech industry where I felt that the story was relatable kind of in in, in many cities or in, in a lot of places where there's this like story that your family has and tells itself and this idea that you have for yourself and mm-hmm. um, what should be yours that kind of transcends the specific um, you know popularity of, of the conversation about San Francisco housing. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't feel like it's as um, uh, arm's length for people because it, you know you don't understand what's going on in San Francisco because I feel like this happens all over mm-hmm. and um, the story could be about it could translate to a lot of a lot of different situations. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and you know, in the case of Joe Talbot and Jimmy Fails, these are lifelong you know San Francisco residents, so mm-hmm. they they are telling a story that's personal to them. I think it would be different if it was like an outsider filmmaker who was like, oh yeah, you know. San Francisco is a fucking cesspool. Uh, right, you know, yeah. it's a, all we hear in the news is, you know, what a fucking nightmare it is and how it's imploded and, and it's eating itself alive. Let's go and make a movie about it. Right. You know, right, I think right. that that's and that's part of I mean, that takes me to the pivotal scene on the bus toward the end of the movie, but where Thor Birch makes her cameo <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. and the dialogue, uh, the exchange between her and Jimmy Fields' character about whether you can sort of whether when you're allowed to hate San Francisco. <laughs> uh, so I think this movie does have, you know, it has a uh, standing mm-hmm. to have a commentary that it does. And like I was saying, like there is still, it's not really, it's not about check gentrification. That's just like right. something that's happening in the backdrop of the movie. Like it never gets more specific than just like, we'll just like see a little montage of like, you know, like different parts of the city and you'll see just like, you know, bros and their like fleece vests like walking around. Um, but it doesn't need to say I more saw than you, that. right? In, <laughs> in the background, your fleece vest? You know, it's cold. Uh, <laughs> it's a strange climate here. Uh, but yeah. Um, so this is a movie that I, I look forward to watching again. I only saw it the one time at the San Francisco premiere and that was such a special night and uh, I look forward to seeing it again. All right. So this is going to be my fourth pick. Lists are hard. Um, mm. And it's Wild Nights with Emily. Were you surprised to see this on my list? Yeah, I was. I was. But fortunately, <laughs> I did watch this a few weeks ago. So oh, I, you, did, you yes. hadn't seen it earlier? No, no, because that, I think we watched it. I was, it was an episode that we wound up not doing. Ah, oh, that must be it. And because I think oh. I remember, I think you had like a what's up with you where you talk about this movie because we wound up not doing an episode the week we were going to talk about it. Mm, that sounds like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like That me. sounds like us for the first eight months of this year. <laughs> I kind of went through the list of movies this year. I saw what was on your list and I, I looked at the movies almost in a Marie Kondo way and I was like, what's the title that sparks joy? Uh-huh. Um, and this one sparked joy. I, I think the uh, it was completely unexpected. You have Molly Shannon as um... <laughs> <laughs> Wild Molly... Nights with. <laughs> you have Molly Shannon as Emily Dickinson, uh, which what I don't know. Is it a comedy? Yes. Um, it's a hilarious telling of a real story I don't know I feel like I'm brought back again to Little Women (laughs) and the disappointment I felt at like you know not telling a story in in a unique way and here we have one that shows you know a woman's life that's you know a lot of literary conversations about who she actually was and who the subject of her of her poems were but not kind of covered in uh cinema as much although there wasn't another one right or is that that sh- there's a show maybe on there is a show yeah <laughs> <laughs> show one of the streaming services about her life um but it's a way to i don't know reinvent somebody from the past as someone being human 
Um, it was sweet. It, I, it again, it was so surprising uh, to see Molly Shannon really kind of bring out that um, that level of of uh, I don't know sweetness and, and relatability to uh, a character that is like f- so frozen in time, um, filled with you know uh, stereotypes about her. For someone who writes these incredibly personal human poems to have no real person associated with it um i I feel like the story changed that i would like to remind you about a previous movie that we reviewed in the show called a quiet passion (sighs) that movie was terrible (laughs) guys if you if you go seeing the full like body roll of horror rebecca just did um as she recalled cynthia nixon playing uh having was that last year 10 to 15 minutes of seizures um, in uh, Terrence Davies' film A Quiet Passion, also about Emily Dickinson. I also feel like they didn't humanize her any more than uh, a Wikipedia page. <laughs> this movie does the complete opposite. So you recently saw this one. Yes, I did. Um, and uh, as Rebecca alluded to, there is also a TV show called Dickinson on Apple TV+. And I had watched Dickinson before I watched Wild Nights with Emily. Mm. And I was shocked at the fact that in this year, in the year 2019, we had not one but two uh, sort of queer comedic retellings of the life of Emily Dickinson. Oh, Uh, is that the the TV one is also? Oh, very much. Interesting. Very much. Recommend it? I do, actually. Um, Is this the one with Jenna Maroney? (laughs) <laughs> yes, <laughs> with Jenna Maroney as Mrs. Dickinson. <laughs> Emily, stop with all the poems. <laughs> um, how are you going to find a nice young man to marry? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so in, in, in the TV show, Haley Steinfeld plays her. And so it's more about young Emily Dickinson. Mm. But it's interesting because like the same, the core sort of love triangle is still there between Emily, mm. her brother, and her brother's wife. So, like, that is still, that is, like, the core triangle in Dickinson, and it's the core triangle in Wild Nights with Emily. And, and, you know, Wild Nights with Emily almost functions in a way as, like, a sort of, like, a feature film epilogue to Dickinson. Because, Mm. like, fast forward to, you know, Emily in her adult years, and uh, and she still has this relationship with her brother's wife. And, uh, I honestly, I wish I had seen it before Dickinson, because... Uh, Wild Nights with Emily is it has such a light touch mm. um, to the point that it fe- I might describe it as like wispy. Uh, yeah, it, it, yeah. It's very like it feels very um, kind of early 90s indie. It's the kind of movie you could have pictured playing the Sundance lineup in like 1991. Yeah. Um, yeah. And being heralded as like a gem of new queer cinema mm-hmm. um, because it is so playful and so kind of irreverent um, while at the same time being very very much like a zero budget indie movie mm. um you know molly shannon clearly did this one for love <laughs> <laughs> and uh and yeah and like she is inspired casting um she because, really is. because she is somebody who can you know she's obviously one of the funniest women who's ever lived but she can but she is able to manifest joy in such a, a beautiful way and just like emotional rawness and truth and that all comes through in her in her uh, performance as emily dickinson so yeah, I think this is definitely kind of one of the last gems of the year, and uh, and I wish there had been more. There's somebody should have written an article to point it out that Wild Nights with Emily and Dickinson mm. were both kind of telling a similar story this year, and that we were 2019 was the year of like everybody getting to sort of properly celebrate and recognize Emily Dickinson as sort of like a, a, a queer heroine. 
And forget Cynthia Nixon. <laughs> yeah. And with no seizures to be found in either. <laughs> what a disservice. Uh. Jason, your number five, Marriage Story. Yes. Um, as much as it pains me to put a Netflix movie in my top five, and as much as I've kind of second-guessed this one a little bit, because, like, you know, it's so broad and it's so accessible that part of me almost wonders, like, is this my number five? But I mean, but I think it is. And it, it's been widely mocked on the internet, turned into memes of the fight scene <laughs> between Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. So good. has <laughs> um, been, been used to, to, suppl- to supplant many an argument um, with the, you know, with the, the punctuation of the wall punch. Uh, <laughs> I even, I saw one that was like Evanescence lyrics. Oh yes, that was a good one. I love that one. <laughs> Wake me up! <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's so good, and uh, and I know we we reviewed this on our November episode with our friend Ashley Delatore, and she wasn't a fan, uh, and uh, and you were like eh, about it, and you know, and I think the one thing that we all kind of agreed on is that um, Scarlett Johansson was not up to the task, no, of uh, of playing this role, and she gives it her absolute all, and um, but she ultimately just can't go toe to toe with Adam Driver. And, and then we failed to come up with the best person who should have played the role instead when we were taping that episode. But then the next morning, I did think of who I thought it should be. And it's somebody who you, I think I told you both, and you both were like, boo, um, because she's somebody who everyone has turned against. But I think that Jennifer Lawrence would have knocked this out of the park because she is somebody who can summon the same level of emotional intensity that Adam Driver can. Like, to think of them... To think of her doing that fight scene with him, like the walls would have been blown off the place. So I, in my mind, want Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> I want I, I want to see her in this role. Hmm. Um, I think that she would have been. I mean, since they're already casting somebody young, uh, might as well just have Jennifer Lawrence do it. <laughs> um, hmm. But uh, look, I don't think it's the worst idea having Jennifer Lawrence play. Yeah. It. Yeah, especially because, you know, the character is not supposed to be likable anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It kind of tracks, like, the career of having someone who was, like, in kind of, you know, silly movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, I can see it. And, I mean, just, like, go back and, you know, watch her fight scenes from, like, Silver Lang's playbook and American Hustle Mm -hmm, for a reminder mm -hmm. of, like, how she gets when she (laughs) fucking lights her fuse. Yeah. Um, But, you know, but still, like, as a movie, I do think that this is, I think it's great. I think that it's... You know, it's it's drawn the ire of, you know, yeah, you know, internet snark. But I think it's partially because it's so sincere, you know, like it's a very kind of heart in its sleeve movie. And uh, so I think that kind of can't help but open it up for pot shots. And also it's on Netflix, so it's widely available for everyone to just like <laughs> screenshot and make fun of to their heart's content. Um, but yeah, it, it's proven to be a lot more polarizing than I thought it would be. Um, when I first saw it at Mill Valley back in October... I was just like, well, this is it. Like, this is this is like one of the best movies of the year. Nobody's gonna have shit to say about this. And then, of course, you know, people have shit to say about it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, maybe I, I think my favorite thing about movies is acting, and this movie has a lot of acting in it. Mm. And I think that turns some people off. Like the, the people who have heard kind of shit talk this movie are just like, oh my god, it's so overblown. Um, all the acting is overwrought. It's over dramatized. Um, you know, it tr- it goes for so many different huge emotional swings, and I'm like, exactly, it's great. <laughs> that's my favorite thing about movies. So I think that's part of why I enjoy it so much because it really did take me on like an emotional ride, and you know, like in in you know, with that kind of grace note at the end of Adam Driver singing "Being Alive," which people have also decided they hate. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't deny. I just can't deny this movie. I can't deny the impact it had on me when I first saw it. And I, when I watched it again with you and Ashley, even though you two weren't as enthused, I was still kind of like in it. Mm. Um, so I think that, um, yeah, I think it's no bomb box, sort of like biggest, most accessible, most mainstream movie yet. But it doesn't sacrifice his uh, his sort of gift for character and dialogue and insight. There are certainly a few moments where it gets a little too sentimental um, for me. But I, yeah, overall, it's still for me. I feel pretty comfortable naming my number five with the caveat, like we said earlier, that it's been a shitty year. <laughs> so I don't know if I've been in my top five in the previous year, but mm. for this year, it is my number five. So given what you just said about acting, how come The Lighthouse didn't make it into your top five? Well, because the the acting in The Lighthouse was certainly big, but it's not as relatable because it's about madness. So I think there's a difference. <laughs> I think there's a difference between like a movie where like it's Robert Pattinson like just like losing his mind because Willem Dafoe can't stop farting. <laughs> uh, which is you don't think that's relatable? <laughs> yeah, you don't see me making that face. Why in do you think we room? do one podcast a month? <laughs> I felt like that was the most relatable movie I've seen all year. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I've been taking I've been taking Bino. <laughs> Doing my best. Um but uh but yeah, I mean I I enjoy you know, like the, there's not as much emotion in the lighthouse. It's more just like yeah, madness. It's just pure madness. And I did enjoy the fireworks, especially from Willem Dafoe in that movie. Mm. Like I thought that it was going to be his like shoe in Oscar moment. Right. And and yet it seems like he's like not even in the conversation really? for best supporting actor. And people are like, "Oh no, he overdoes it." What? I know. I, have, I, I don't I don't know what He's people perfect want. In that movie. I don't know what people want from He's acting. Perfect in that movie. I'm just shrugging. I have no fucking idea anymore what people <laughs> want from acting. Cynthia Revo is a shoe in for Harriet. Willem Dafoe is a disaster in the lighthouse. I have no idea what's happening. What is going on? Um, but yeah, no, I um, you know with Marriage Story, I mean, I think it, it needs to be the kind of emotional journey that I feel pulled into, and I wasn't pulled into the emotional mm, journey of the lighthouse. Okay, so that is a, there is a caveat there. I think that's important. Yeah, so otherwise, it's not, it's uncut not, gems would be in the conversation. Yeah, it's not just like any emotion. Um, I think well, I think there's a difference between like emotion and intensity. And I think like if the emotion is just like really high pitched anger, then that's, <laughs> I'm not looking for like nonstop anger. That's what you um, have the housewives for. Exactly, I get that from them. I don't need that also from my character actors. <laughs> so anyway, fair um, enough. Yeah, so Marriage Story is still on my list. Um, okay, so my number five is The Lion King. I also forgot this came out this year um, <laughs> because time moves strangely. <laughs> it had the potential. It was terrifying. It had the potential to be so. Bad. They did the live action version of a Disney animated classic, and it is, I'll say it, better than the original. Wow. And I'm still so proud of you for even watching it because you all might remember that Rebecca had to just literally leave the room mm. uh, whenever I reviewed this show when Nick Sahoya was our guest host. Mm. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, I went to go see it in, uh, you know, uh, a very appropriate setting with sunglasses and things that nobody couldn't be shamed by any of the children <laughs> leaving the theater. I do love that you went to see it like you were like seeing a dirty movie. <laughs> You're like with walking with like a tr trench coat and <laughs> fake mustache and fedora. Um, what a delight! I think that this that you lose nothing in um, in having the the live action retelling. I'm thinking now through your review. I forgot you did the whole. You had this bit about yelling or screaming. Oh right, the James Earl Jones voice. James going, Earl Jones ah! voice. <laughs> 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 and they play it like four times. Ah. <laughs> it's more heartbreaking in the movie than it, Jason lets on. It is not with his acting. <laughs> oh, God. Um, 
um, I'm happy that it, it, it you know brought this story to a whole new audience. Um, uh, I think that Billy Eichner and Seth Rogen brought new energy and humor to Timon and Pumbaa, um, while the the story of uh, Simba, his growth, his harsh lessons about life he was taught are still carry through in this film and it's gorgeous it's a treat buy it on blu-ray at your <laughs> local target i don't know <laughs> it's it's the perfect movie yeah this was definitely a shock but then i remembered you also put that christopher robin movie on your list that one year <laughs> so i never i never know what to expect it brought uh, me joy see i i yeah i come in with like a big studio comedy and you come in with a family movie mm. and that's that's good you yeah. know you gotta 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 keep it keep on their toes just funny because i don't have a family and you're not funny <laughs> This this movie I I I think I I liked it. I wasn't as like hard on this movie as a lot of critics were, because I did think that it managed to preserve like a lot of the a lot of things that made the original such a classic. Mm. I think translated into this, as opposed to Aladdin, mm. which which I which would be my number six on my worst movies of the list year. Like I had it. I had to like right before you got here. I had to have Scott work with me to like cut one movie from like six to get down to five from mm. the worst movies and aladdin was i god i wanted to just keep it on there and just lay into that fucking movie because that's a movie that truly destroyed every ounce of joy and magic and, and humor from the original in in while translating it for just like a live action disney cash grab um whereas the lion king with the exception of yeah i said before and i'll say it again beyonce's shitty ass vocal performance uh, with the exception of that, The mm-hmm. Lion King really is, it is, like, I, it does translate. Is it necessary? No. But it doesn't do a disservice to the original, mm. which is the best you can ask for from these Disney live-action remakes. Um, I just saw a 3D trailer for the new Mulan movie. Oh. A 3D trailer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Looks good. It looks good. I, yeah, I have not seen it yet, but I am cautiously optimistic. I actually never saw the original Mulan. So. Yeah, I, I think I was where maybe a little bit older than yeah. Kind of fall when when they fall into that like teens years, you're like too yeah. cool to see a Disney movie, so sometimes you miss them. Because I think didn't I think Christina Aguilera did the song from that movie, which means it was like late '90s. So mm. we were definitely not in not our like Disney viewing that. years exactly when we were like sassy teenagers. Lion King was you know in my perfect zone of uh, my favorite Disney movie growing up, so I was. Yeah, you know, it was a lot on the line with this one. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, you you were primed to be a tough critic on this, and you loved it, and that is quite a testament to the Lion King. I loved it. Um, all right, enough of this happiness. <laughs> enough of this schmaltzy best of the year. Let's move on to the worst movies of the year. Jason, we're going to start with you and Dark Phoenix. Now, uh, so these these are, by the way, mine are not in any order. My worst no, ones. No, I don't, I don't think mine you, are either. Yeah, let's just say I kind of hate them all equally. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so Dark Phoenix, uh, I mean, it's just such a sad, pathetic death rattle to a once great franchise. The first truly great superhero franchise that we had, which was the early X-Men films, even under a problematic director like Brian Singer. Mm. Um, you know, the first two X-Men movies are kind of what made people think that a superhero movie could be something that is serious. And that could ha- actually have like a profound uh, social impact with you mm. know with a sort of allegorical storytelling about outsiders and outcasts. And I think now more than ever, uh, with the especially with the the vision in X Men of the government's role in sort of marginalizing and policing 
mutant bodies, <laughs> uh, it, it now more than ever would have been the time to have a really good, well-made, well-written, hard-hitting X-Men movie that really, you know, sort of like talks about that subject that really so you know would tell a story about these outcasts and outsiders being persecuted by the government and locked away it would have i think resonated maybe opened some eyes um to people who would go see this movie and wouldn't necessarily be paying attention to the news um but instead what we got was just a nothing just a total complete nothing just like it it, it was so unnecessary it had not an ounce of joy or excitement to it it was just it felt so it was just just dragging under the weight of its own sense of obligation to just finish this fucking story and be done with it. It is a complete waste of money it is a complete waste of, um, as always a sprawling cast of uber talented actors. It is horrible. It is just so bad. And I think part of, you know, why I'm being so hard on it is again. And I think probably a lot of the movies I've chose this year are not just bad in a vacuum, to me it's because of like what they could have been Mm. um or you know like how they fit in the larger context of films like them and yeah i mean x-men used to be a a great thing and even when the reboot started up with the you know days of future past and all that it was still really really good even if it kind of lost some of the profundity of the first two x-men movies at the very least was like really like a a rollicking good time and this is just nothing it's none of those things it's horrible and uh, and no worst movies of the year list would be complete without it. Uh, I didn't see it. Um, no so need. I, I'm I feel blessed. <laughs> I did see. Um, I I didn't really watch them before, but there's this like I guess very popular YouTube channel called Honest Movie Trailers. Have you ever seen them? Mm-hmm. They do one on Dark Phoenix that I feel. I think those 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 uh, parody trailers are usually not. M- necessarily mean-spirited they're usually pretty on point and this one uh i feel like it, it delivered all of the disappointments in a, in a very accurate way as well just showing how a lot of the actors just seemed like they were so obligated to be there and and not enjoying and not not acting in a um convincing yeah. way yeah and the only actor that seems even marginally excited about what happens in the movie is jennifer lawrence because her character gets killed <laughs> <laughs> so she gets to be done once and for all <laughs> with these movies <laughs> and I don't care if that's a spoiler <laughs> because it's a bad movie it's been out since like May alright second movie is Harriet I think that in previous years we also talked about our worst of the year as being most disappointing most disappointing which I think carries through here as well and especially with Harriet we talked about this one recently um, in our November episode and we're just not in a place where you you can you can get to put your your project associated with a name like Harriet Tubman and not deliver something that is going to be groundbreaking. You're going to use the name of someone who literally used ingenuity and uh, strength and sacrificed her life for to make things better. And then you put some recycle history book nonsense in, and show this to us as a movie. No, absolutely not. What a complete waste of time. I hope it doesn't discourage other people from making, you know, you saw that first Emily Dickinson movie. Make another one. Don't don't say that the Harriet right. Tubman movie's been made now because it right. hasn't been made now. Hopefully the Cynthia Riva one will be, will be the quiet passion of, uh, exactly. of Harriet Tubman movies. <laughs> and now we can get a better take in the next time around. But yeah, I think this was one of the first times that we used Send It Back in, like, I think we called it the restaurant definition. Exactly. Meaning like, nope, this is not done right. Please do it better and bring it back. Bring it back. Because we want there to be a great Harriet Tubman movie, but this is most decidedly not it. 
And I almost wish that like we as a culture could be more uniform in our condemnation of it mm. so that we would just send the message once and for all that like, no, there needs to be a better one. Because I think people are equivocating because it could just like optics wise, it looks bad to condemn this movie. Right. Um, but in so and hence Cynthia Revo's ongoing involvement in the best actress conversation. But this movie fucking sucks. Cynthia Revo was terrible in it. And we need a better Harry Tubman movie. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. So let's see. Number three, The Dead Don't Die. Jason. Ugh. Yeah, this was this was from my um my my three night run of disappointing movies back around June or so where I saw this late night and Booksmart all in a row, um and all three of which I thought I was going to love to varying degrees, none of which I wound up loving. Um, I have come around a bit on Booksmart. I I watched it a second time, uh, with Scott, and I still don't think it's great. It's definitely not in my top ten list, but I have come around to have more of an appreciation for it even if I'm now mad at Olivia Wilde for other reasons I'll get to later. <laughs> and late night, I have no interest in revisiting. Um, I will just let that one be just a mediocre comedy. But The Dead Don't Die still just makes my blood boil <laughs> uh, because it is sort of like the ultimate embodiment of too cool for school or mm. too cool to try. It's a cool director, Jim Jarmusch, with a cool cast led by the king of cool guy don't try, Bill Murray. Uh, and it's just a bunch of people standing around fucking doing nothing in the guise of a zombie comedy. Like, nothing happens. There is no story. There is no stakes. There, It's just a nothing. <laughs> it's another just nothing. It's a nothing of a movie. It's more of a nothing than anything else on this list. Um, it, it like <laughs> It's like, I'm just like, why make it if you're not even going to try? There is just no effort to be found anywhere in this movie. And I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I hate everything it stands for. And, uh, and I think less of everybody's every single person in this movie because they're in it. And again, Jimmy Darmush is, is a sporadically good director. I am not in the, the church of Jim Jarmusch the way mm. that some are. You know, I am not a hipster from the 80s. So <laughs> I don't swear by Jim Jarmusch quite the same as others do. But his last, you know, art house horror movie, Only Lovers Left Alive with Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston, I fucking loved. Mm. So I think that, again, contextually is why I'm so angry at this movie, because I know what he can do. And especially when working with a great cast. And this movie does have a great cast, which makes it all the more disappointing. So, yeah, fuck this movie. Uh, I hate it. <laughs> I hate, I hate, I hate it. I also didn't see this one. I'm so, I feel like I'm getting off uh, pretty lucky. Most of these that you have, actually all of them, one, two. I haven't seen any of your worst. <laughs> what a delight. Oh, how fun. Um, and to to be the complete opposite of that, I think that one of my, my next worst movie is one of your favorites, which is Tiamantino. <laughs> I also, like the Church of Satan, just exist to antagonize your <laughs> happiness and taste. That's right. That's right. We had quite the uh, disagreement on this one. Did you? Was this your pick of the week? The week? I think it was. Oh. Yeah, yeah. I love this movie. <sighs> Diamantino. I hated this movie. <laughs> this is a um, Uruguayan <laughs> <laughs> Portuguese, <laughs> a Portuguese satire um, about class and politics. <laughs> it is uh, a story of a soccer player who gets caught up in a tax scheme and then preyed upon because he is... He's dumb. Because he's dumb. 
and uh, he gets preyed upon by his sisters and manipulated, and then he gets false prey to this government conspiracy that is trying to use him for their um, nationalistic propaganda, and and then also he's made into a woman. And, oh, right, and then he ends up falling in love with the person he thinks is the teenage boy that he has adopted. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I just find it too problematic to be to get to its end point it's like the opposite of jojo rabbit where jojo rabbit you can have like all these you know problematic elements of, of nazism and you know being thinking hitler is funny and like kind of adorable at the beginning but the, the through line is so clear that you see the point this one it was too muddled for me to understand that uh that those things were okay in the name of comedy um i c- couldn't buy it oh, and i was just upset that you loved it so much god i love it so much I watched it a second time uh, with Christian and his roommate Mark, and we all loved it together. And uh, I've seen it on other year-end lists. It's Criterion's wow. featuring it on their channel. Woof. This is a great movie. Man, what is going on this year? Harriet, <laughs> this. I don't know how this goes with Harriet, but. We're disappointment. The critics <laughs> thinking weird things. Well, that, no, critics mainly didn't like Harriet. That's mm. the thing. It's more, I think it's more of a cultural push to like to act like Harriet's this a good movie. This is that pro-Portuguese cultural <laughs> push. <laughs> I am sick of. <laughs> You're like, I'm t- we need big Portugal money out of American <laughs> film. <laughs> Just saying. It's everywhere. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah, no, I fucking love this movie. Um, but I, I know that you hate it. <laughs> and uh, and yes, we, we did fight about it. And then we fought about some more over Pride at Dolores Park. Oh, yeah, we did. Yeah, this 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 is, this is one of the ones that spilled out for us. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I, I continue to very much enjoy this movie. It's one of the most like delightfully original farces I've seen for sure this year in, in a long time. So um, and uh, it has its support. So I take comfort in that. Mm, worst, <laughs> worst of list. <laughs> Clearly, right there. Um, okay, what's your next one? Oh, this one, the Goldfinch. Yeah. Ugh. So yeah, the Goldfinch. I put on here again, kind of because of you know what it represents or what it should have been. You know, this is a star-studded prestige adaptation of one of the most beloved novels of like the last thirty years. And it just fails on every single front. It fails to, in any way, translate what worked on the page to something compelling on the screen. Uh, It fails to um, come up with a narrative that makes sense. It fails its cast, Nicole Kidman, Sarah Paulson. Uh, It fails everybody involved. It is just a shitty fucking movie. It is crashingly dull. It is everything wrong with Hollywood literary adaptations in one boring fucking package. Um, <laughs> so this, the Goldfinch, should be a cautionary tale that all people should refer, all filmmakers should refer back to when doing a literary adaptation to make sure you don't fall into the giant fucking pothole of mediocre misery that is the Goldfinch. I'm glad I didn't read the book or see the movie. <laughs> <laughs> see, I shield you from these things, <laughs> especially now in our monthly model. I'm just like, see this. <laughs> it's good. You're like, all right. <laughs> I've seen a lot more of them, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. Um, all right. What are we at? Third uh, for me is Adam. We had a journey on this one, I think, as we were reviewing it. We did. I think we started off in disparate points and maybe ended up together. This is the movie of a teenage boy 
who goes to visit his sister in New York City. Um, she's running with this like, <laughs> like hip queer gang that we think is has the vocabulary of a queer gang ten years ahead of their time. At least because it takes place in the '90s, right, early 2000s. Um, and he falls for um, he falls for one of her friends, and this the deception of this one is that uh, he does not say he's not trans, and uh, sh- and they start a relationship, and then eventually he comes out as being uh, cishet, and and then he learns some lessons and moves on, probably to be a very successful cishet white man. Um, uh, again. Too problematic, doesn't quite uh, have the end result, doesn't tell the story of the, the people who you're supposed to, you know, the the director, uh, Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> Reese. Sorry, Reese, we're calling you out. Uh, <laughs> no, it is Reese. Reese uh, Ernst. Reese Ernst. Uh, who's a trans filmmaker. Who's a trans filmmaker. Because um, there was a lot of back and forth about this. There were a lot of original critical um, reviews based on this deception. And the story is supposed to be that there there's a learning to be made. Yeah, I think we that? talked about how maybe the hope of the filmmakers was that this would be, by by centering a straight, you know, a cishet character in a sort of like a teen coming of age sex farce, that there would be people who would want to watch it who would be more like the main character. Right. Like maybe like straight teenage boys would watch this movie and be like, oh, and then go on the same learning journey that the main character goes on and kind of get the same crash course in queerness and the same crash course in sort of like the vulnerability of queer people, you know, and just come out of it as more compassionate, enlightened uh, movie fans. But I think that we were like, that's a delusional hope mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. no straight teenagers are going to watch a wolf video movie. <laughs> <laughs> no queer teenagers are going to watch a wolf video movie. <laughs> no one younger than us is going to watch. No. <laughs> no one younger or fairer than us is going to watch a, a wolf video movie. And of course, like, you know, you don't want to tell an artist what their intention should be or be like, well, you shouldn't do that because it's not realistic. Cause I, you know, art isn't necessarily meant to be realistic. But, you know, it, it does feel like ultimately there was a series of poor choices made. And I think we also were talking about how the novel that this is based on was actually far worse and even more mm-hmm. offensive than this movie. Um, but it is one of those movies that feels like it just shouldn't have been made. And, um, you know, it's not a knock against the actors, especially your girl, Margaret Qualley. Margaret Qualley. Oof. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, no, this, this, this was misbegotten. And, yeah, just shouldn't exist. Shouldn't have been made. Um, last Christmas, Jason. It's like if you had told me that there would ever be a time that I made a worst movies of the year list and I put a movie on it that was written by Emma Thompson and directed by Paul Feig, I would have <laughs> shot you in the face, just point blank. <laughs> uh, but God damn it, this fucking movie is such a travesty. Like, I was so excited for it because yeah. Paul Feig, Emma Thompson, like, I mean, Paul Feig has, this is the first time he's ever truly let me down because from Bridesmaids on through A Simple Favor, I have been such a fan of everything he's done. Um, I think Emma Thompson's record as a screenwriter is a bit more spotty if only because she's mm. done a lot of like those fucking Nanny McGee movies or whatever. Um, but she's still Emma Thompson. She is still better than all of us. 
And so the thought of her writing movie for Paul Feig to direct just seemed like a, a no-brainer. And, you know, then the cast is there. It's Amelia Clark and, and Henry Golding and, and Emma Thompson as well. And it's like, okay, well, this is just going to be it's a holiday rom-com. I was like, okay, this is going to be my new love, actually. This is going to be fantastic. And it is just, it is, it is hard to explain how bad this is. Like, it is just, it is, it is built on a terrible foundation. Um, and that foundation is basically a really hyper-literal, slightly perverse reading of the lyrics of the song, Last Christmas. So, um... And we're thinking, um, uh, Wham. Yes. Okay. The Wham song, Last Christmas. If you think the words, Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, and the very next day, you gave it away. Uh... This movie like extrapolates that into the most warped, like twist ending romance uh, that is that is fathomable. Organ harvesting. It involves yeah. It, what? It, it, invo- <laughs> it involves a heart transplant. Oh God. Oh yeah. <laughs> it does involve a literal heart transplant. Oh dear God. And it may or may not involve the ghost of the person whose heart it came from. No. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. And I think, you know, just with those, if you look at what the story is, uh, you can probably piece together the rest of it. Um, or not, because it's fucking insane. So no offense. <laughs> no no blame on you. If you're still like, huh? I don't get it. Um, because there's nothing to get. This is This is just... This is an embarrassment. This is absolutely humiliating. Ooh. Uh, is it bad enough to want to see, though? I mean, I wouldn't watch it again, but no, I mean, I would say no. Like, don't watch it. <laughs> if you want to know what the twist is, ask me and I'll tell you. <laughs> I'll say it right now. <laughs> Do it. Say tell it right me the now. Twist. Who cares? Yeah. So, yeah. So, basically, the whole movie, Amelia Clark plays this sort of like party girl in London who is like not good at adulting mm. and who is like working at like a, a a Christmas supply store, like a Christmas knickknack and ornament shop. And then, you know, one day she meets this character by, by Henry Golding, who is, you know, playing this very dashing kind of businessman who takes an interest in her and they start to have this, this romance. But then eventually <laughs> she, she discovers that um, he is the ghost of the man whose heart was given to her the previous Christmas um, when she uh, when she needed a heart transplant and he was hit and uh, he was like on a bicycle that was he was struck and killed and uh, and she got his heart and uh, and, and then the, he comes back for his now, heart in come, the name in the face of Henry Golding. <laughs> well, he doesn't come back to get it. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, you know that old story. <laughs> that old that old bait and switch. You're like, well, you're like once again, it's like tag yourself. You're the one who <laughs> who thought they were in love. It's really just a ghost to get coming to get their heart back. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a real, it's a reductress article waiting to happen. Um, it happened to me. <laughs> I, followed, I, I, I fell in love with a ghost who won its heart back. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just it's just dismal. It tries to shoehorn in this like anti-Brexit narrative that is like noble but so wildly hilariously misplaced. Wow! Because um, Amelia Clark's family is an immigrant family uh, from Eastern Europe, and um, and you know, and her parents are watching the news and and you know, in in kind of in despair about the fact that you know, feeling like the everyone in England hates them, 
And so, and it's like, which is like also like a great story that should be told. But the fact that Emma Thompson, for some reason, thought it would belong in this movie <laughs> about ghost heart theft. <laughs> um, yeah, wow. it's just a misbegotten nightmare of a movie. Speaking of misbegotten nightmares of a movie. Do we go controversial first or do we go not controversial first? <laughs> Maybe we go controversial Let's go first because we'll, it'll, be so. it'll be better to end on the other yeah, one. Yeah, we need to end on the other one. We yeah. need, we'll need it. Um, I put Little Women in my worst of category. Uh, I noticed you didn't put it in your best of category, so that's better than I thought it was going to be. True. It's not there. Mm-hmm. Did you also put it in your worst of category? <laughs> no. No, you didn't. No. I think this is, though, this the responsibility for this being in the worst of category falls squarely on the shoulders of you, Jason Leroy. <laughs> because I made you watch the 94 one? Because I asked you if I should watch the 94 one, and you said, yes, you should, and I did, and I got so angry, again, at at the... Um, at Greta Gerwig. At Greta Gerwig, and I am upset with myself for agreeing with you so clearly in your review of Little Women. It Saoirse Ronan is too cool for school, uh, it is. It is not f- fresh at all. The, it misses all of the authenticity, charm. Even it didn't even when I watched the. the I'm getting upset. The Greta Gerwig. <laughs> She's version, rubbing her temples, guys. I like didn't even realize or remember it's supposed to be like a Christmas movie. Mm-hmm. The other, the '94 version, clearly is a Christmas movie. It is cinematic as well. Even if we're going to talk about like the new one, like looks beautiful. So does the one from '94. It looks like New England. Oh yeah, it looks like a million bucks. It looks like winter. The people aren't as terrible. The age situation is all the more clearly a problem with the Amy character in the new one. It makes so much more sense when you see her as a, a little girl. And as an adult woman. <laughs> when you see her as a 13-year-old without the voice of Kathleen Turner. <laughs> so much. But the voice of young Kirsten Dunst. It makes everybody so much more likable. I found the characters so unlikable in this new version. Um, I even liked Christian Bale more than Chalamet. Chalamet. See the 94 version. And probably you guys have because it's a really... <laughs> it's, it's a generally... Just in case. Just in case. Not, not a movie generally thought of as a, as a lost gem. Uh it's kind of a it's a movie that even I mean between the two of us we are in in the minority since you, know, you just watched it and I watched it for the first time four years ago fair um, but uh, but you are it's, it's in the in the super minority in the sense that you watched the Greta Gerwig one before you watched mm-hmm. the Gillian Armstrong one do yourself a favor if you haven't see the 94 version it is what this movie should be I, I watching this the new Greta, Greta Gerwig version not having I don't think read the book not having seen Apparently, there's also another one. We had previously that there well, were two older ones. There's a third older one from like the 20s. Oh, so there are four uh-huh. movies. And there's also like 18 different miniseries that have been made of this over the years of as course. well. And then there's the book. Yep. Um, and the sequels. And this new one, when I watched it, I was like, okay, that's kind of, this is the nothing I didn't want to see the other ones about. And then I saw the 94 version and I was like, no, there is a story here and this is sweet and this is entertaining <clears throat> mm-hmm. and... Wow, what a miss. So I did watch um, the Greta Gerwig version again um, this past week with Scott's family. And I really was on a journey with it because at first it was really validating all the things that I disliked about the Gerwig version, Um, especially because we were watching it with with Scott's sister, who is like super familiar with the 94 version. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and then a few different members of his family were kind of popping in and out. And like everyone was so confused by the timeline yes. that it was basically like memento. Like, <laughs> like it might as well, it was like Nolan time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's like, and like Scott got to the point where he had to just literally say, this is the present. This is the past. This is the present. This is the past. Um, to like keep people like present to be like, where the fuck are we in the story? And he was like trying to like say things like, oh, you, you, you'll know when we're in the past because it, it's going to look brighter. And also, like, watch their hair. It's so subtle. Um, <laughs> so subtle. But then by the end, they kind of merge in terms of, like, the, the color palette. Like, once once it kind of, when, once we're in the final stretch, because, you know, once in the past, by the end of the past timeline, things start to get a little bit more, more muted looking. And then you really have no idea what the fuck's going on. There's at least one <laughs> scene where both times I've watched it, I have been completely unclear whether we're present or past. Is it with the dead one? No. It, <laughs> it, no, there's a scene where, where like, um where joe is like sleeping up in the up in the attic and then Lori goes in and wakes her up and mm. both times i've watched it i've mm. been like wait where are we so yeah so at first i was just I, I just got angry at the movie all over again um because i was like this stupid fucking timeline is so unnecessary i think it implies if you're like a little women's super fan <laughs> then i think it's <laughs> like it's like a it's like a little sort of like uh, brain teaser almost to be like oh mm. just imagine if the story was told and totally out of order totally out of sequence um, and then you're just you're just like oh I like this I'm on my toes I'm keeping up um, but I will say by the end of watching it the second time I did appreciate it more um, not more than the 94 version but I could see what she was doing and mm. I was more on board with Saoirse Ronan playing Joe because it occurred to me that on the page Joe is a Saoirse like Joe is meant to be like the one who's not going to get married. Joe is meant to be the one who is like the writer. She's mm-hmm. the one who's like a lost cause, like as Aunt Mar- as Aunt March calls her in one scene. Um, like she's meant to just be like studiously in the corner, just like writing things while like Meg's getting married off and Amy's getting married off. Like Joe is meant to be that. And Winona Ryder was, you know, is like the most beautiful person in the cast of the 94 version. Like Winona Ryder is at her. The or pe- in the. <laughs> yeah, she's the most beautiful, one of the most beautiful women who's ever lived. And in, and in 1994, she was at the peak of her powers as both a beauty and as an actor. And so I, I can see why Sersha, basically Greta Gerwig, I think, was really centering Joe as a creator, as like sort of like a, a proto-feminist writer uh, who was going against the grain of her time. And who was just like not interested in like all like the frivolity of all this Jane Austeny kind of nonsense going on around her, and was just really chafing against it, and was like, I don't care, like I'm 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 not interested in any of that. I'm just a writer. Like that's I'm I'm, and she calls herself like homely, and she's just like yeah, like she's like let Meg get married, let Amy get married. That's fine. That's not that's not what I'm here for. Um, and I think that that much is more believable coming from Saoirse Ronan than it is from Winona Ryder. Mm. Um, and I think that you know the '94 version also has just like a hint of Disney to it. Um, <laughs> you're like exactly. You're like we're saying the same thing. Uh, <laughs> whereas I think you know Greta Gerwig really has like made a little woman that's in her own voice and in her own sensibilities. So it does feel drier, and it does feel much more sort of intellectual, um, and just much less emotional. And um, and so, but I think by the end of watching it the second time, and then you know her version also is has this kind of whole thing at the end where she is is kind of writing almost this fan fiction scenario of uh, of joe standing in for louisa may alcott having this having this negotiation with her like dumb male publisher um, where she's like reluctantly agreeing to write this like bogus romantic finale 
that the movie then kind of posits like is just something that was a concession to the publisher that is not true that Mm -hmm. is not who joe really is um so uh so i i would say that i i I, you know i've come around a bit on the gerwig version but I, i i do still feel like the average moviegoer is not going to enjoy it the way that they love the 94 version, which was a universal classic for all people. Mm. This has this the, the the narrow niche specificity of a Greta Gerwig movie. Like, I don't think she's made, like, a ton. This is not going to supplant the 94. This is not going to replace the 94 version on people's list of, like, what to watch at Christmas time. People are still sure. going to watch the 94 version. Like, this is this is almost like an oddity. Um, mm. and, you know, in some ways it feels almost indulgent to have Greta Gerwig be making this movie. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I uh, sorry to hijack your <laughs> your your lambasting <laughs> of it. I will turn it back over to you if you want to shit on it some more. Yeah, I will. Okay. Um, I, so I I see what you're saying. I like about putting Joe, removing you know that she became too much of a, a romantic princess in the in the '94 version. Although in the new version, she still ends up with uh, with that guy. But does she? That's the thing, you know, because that scene in the rain, I think, is meant to be like it's meant to be her like faking this thing for the publisher. That's not meant to be like literally oh, what's happening. It seemed like it was really what's happening. That's why it's so heightened. That's why it's so like it feels so when you're watching it, it's so ridiculous. And With that's the, why Timothy Chalamet is just like sitting around in the house being <laughs> like, go after. I have right. such a weird dynamic. Change. Yeah. Like, suddenly all the family is like screaming like, go after him. You love him. And it's raining and there's a kiss in the rain. And like, I think that's why it's meant to feel so cliche. I'm not going to rewatch it to <laughs> see if you're right or not. Let's just focus in on one thing here. Yeah, yeah. The timeline does not work. No, it does not. The it's... timeline does not work for so many reasons. Yeah. Even in the new version, and and maybe if we're supposed to imagine that all of this at the end doesn't really happen in the story and it's just what's written on the page, mm-hmm. this idea that um, Amy, Amy, right? Amy's... Amy's, Amy's Florence, Florence yeah. Pugh. Ends up with... Uh, Lori. Lori, even though... He knew her when she Joe was. was. No, that's still fine. That's still fine. You're like, I don't like Andy Mantino, but in this, it's fine. It's okay. Um, <laughs> time passed. There's a difference there. Um, even though at the same time, in like the, I don't know, X amount of time since their other sister died, mm-hmm. she Joe has decided she maybe wants to be with him again, but then is kind of like, doesn't get that opportunity because he's gone and married her sister. That also makes her look like she's has these concessions about uh, getting married out of loneliness because her sister passed away, um, and and it doesn't work to start off seeing Lori as like an asshole. The timeline of them growing up together and mm-hmm. seeing what the dynamic between him and the entire yeah. family is makes a lot more sense in a normal chronological order. Yeah, especially because he looks the same age in the whole movie <laughs> yes. as well. Right. Um, it doesn't make anybody likable in the movie seeing them in this back and forth version. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, there are a few moments that having the dual timeline, there are a few moments of like synchronicity that Greta Gerwig introduces that have like varying degrees of power. Mainly it feels like it's around Beth's death. Okay. I'm glad you brought this up. (laughs) So in the movie, she's in bed with Beth who dies yet. They somehow remove her body from the bed without waking her up. She wakes up and Beth is gone. But she's not in the bed. She's in a chair in the room. Check it again. I think she's nope. in the bed because she's like she says something to her. She like pets her hair and is holding her. No, it's and like she a, wakes up and then she's gone. She's in like a little window nook. Like mm. it's like it's, she is. That's where. Do like, you have it? We're putting it. Up. We, <laughs> let's go to the tape. Let's go to the tape. Uh, but uh, but so you know that scene just like introducing this kind of this you know introducing this this dual image of of Joe waking up and walking down the stairs into the kitchen. And, you know, in, in, in the flashback, finding Marmy sitting with Beth 
and then in the in the present tense finding marmy sobbing at the table you know i think that you know it's not for nothing i think the greta girl probably had moments like that in mind like if you line up these two different moments then it kind of brings more power out of them but i don't think that big picture that that it's worth it um for for what little gains you might have mm. i do think that overall it's not worth it and i will also say speaking of beth i do think that eliza scanlon as beth is like the the biggest nothing of the movie like claire danes oh. is so inimitable in the 94 version mm. like that mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. such and that was her first movie she ever made and um I was reading like trivia about the 94 version while watching the Gerwig one again. And like that scene where they go to like visit the poor family and Claire Danes is holding the baby and she starts to like sob. Yeah. yeah. Like apparently Claire Danes, like the character wasn't even written as like crying. Like she just started to cry holding the baby. And that, um, <laughs> there we have the beginning <laughs> of Claire Danes. Of, of Claire Danes cry face. Um, <laughs> even that scene, like in the, in the Greta Gerwig version, mm-hmm. like, like Marmy had to convince him to go help the family out mm-hmm. or in, in the 94 version, like they volunteer to right. go help the family out really just changes how invested you can be in this family of brats. Right. Yeah. Well, which again, I think gets to like the Disney ish version nature of the 94 one mm. versus I think that the other thing that I appreciate this time around was I think Greta Gerwig does have a real, um, I think she's a real flair for the relationships of female family members. I think like in Lady Bird, like the mother-daughter relationship in that hit so close to home for so many viewers. Um, And in this, watching the second time, I really appreciated like the the overlapping crosstalk dialogue of all the sisters when they're together. They're just like all constantly talking over each other. This goes back to your housewives. (laughs) When you're trying to housewives a vacation. No, no. Hollywood. I I think that, you know, I think that she just has a a much more like unvarnished... Uh, view of like you know like yeah this is what these girls would be like not this kind of like heightened Disney version where they're like yes mother let's go let us go and and, and give to the poor uh, you know in her version they're like yeah they're selfish teenagers and they're just like oh okay I guess mm. um, so I mean so again it's just I think that it's it's valid but I don't I don't think it's better than mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but uh, anyway anyway yeah it's a terrible movie um... <laughs> I'm glad we agree. Moving on. Yo, should we say the same thing next? <laughs> Richard Jewell. <laughs> Richard Jewell. Um, so this is a movie that, as a movie on <laughs> uh, on its on its on its like on its technical merits, is not a bad movie. Um, you know, it's directed by Clint Eastwood, uh, and it, it it tells the story of Richard Jewell, uh, who was if you if you weren't around uh, in the mid '90s. Richard Jewell was a security guard at the Atlanta Olympics uh, who was instrumental in locating an explosive that had been left in like Olympic Park, Olympic Village. Um, and it uh, ultimately it did go off, um, but he was instrumental in sort of minimizing casualties because he kind of helped warn people that it was there. And then in the media coverage in the aftermath of that bomb, Richard Jewell became a suspect. Richard Jewell was uh, stated as a suspect in the bomb, and uh, and by all accounts uh, was had nothing to do with it. was was innocent, um, but it became a media story for a period of time that this kind of this hero turned villain narrative um, mm-hmm. that that a lot of people found to be sort of catnip to as that kind of water cooler. Like, oh, can you believe it? That security guard actually planted the bomb. And what Clint Eastwood sets out to do in this movie is to sort of crucify uh, the institutions that he views as being responsible for the, um, you know, the castigation of this innocent, 
white man. And it just so happens that the villains of uh, <laughs> in this particular uh, conservative allegory are the very same villains that our president likes to lambast the most, namely... Toilets. The, <laughs> um, namely, the press and the FBI. Mm. So... He even manages to, like, get an anti-academia perspective in here. Uh, because basically uh, what, you know, this narrative that he creates is that Richard Jewell was persecuted for being a white man. He was persecuted for, in particular, being the kind of, you know, sort of white man that we picture living in his mother's basement. And he did live with his mother, who was played by Kathy Bates. Mm. And, you know, and, and, you know, for the record, nobody, but nobody plays a sad mom better than Kathy Bates. <laughs> nobody in the biz. Um, so it imagines Richard Jewell as this, as this sort of victim who um, is being unfairly maligned because he is the kind of white guy that people think is like up to something. Um, because, you know, he's played by Paul uh, Walter Hauser. Oh, from I, Tanya? From I, Tanya, uh, Yeah, who first displayed his ability at playing, like, mouth-breathing knuckle draggers in I, Tanya. And, and then also a character that was up to something. Yes, and then continued in Black Klansman, as a Klansman. Up and uh, And now, of course, Clint Eastwood sees him in that, and he's just, like, hero. Um, <laughs> and so he casts him as, as Richard Jewell. And, uh, and the thing that has been the most um, controversial about this movie, that's been the press the most, is the fact that they um, essentially have written a false narrative in which the journalist at the Atlanta newspaper, who was sort of taking lead on this whole story, played by Olivia Wilde, um, it imagines a scenario in which she sort of seduces an, F an FBI agent, played by John Hamm, in order to get him to tell her the name of a suspect and the name was Richard Jewell. So the, this, this journalist um, is deceased. Uh, she is not here to defend herself and they use her real name and mm. they've now created a lasting and false narrative in which she fucked an FBI agent to bring down this noble white man who was just trying to save Americans. Um, and Olivia Wilde plays this character practically with foam coming out of her mouth she is so unhinged in this movie uh it is an appalling performance and undoes any goodwill that she engendered through book smart and the fact that she has had the fucking nerve to go out and do interviews where she accuses the critics of this movie of sexism is a page out of the fucking trump playbook it is fucking Sarah Huckabee Sanders saying mm. that Michelle Wolf was sexist for making mm. a comment about her smoky eye. It is it is using the I know you are, but what am I school of rhetorical defense. And Olivia Wilde seems to have since maybe actually watched the fucking movie that she's in and has now kind of backed away from that and is like, hey, listen, you know, I'm not responsible for the creative choices that were made in this movie. I, I can only play my part. Um, mm. And it's like, well, then maybe do a little research in your own fucking movie before you start piping off and saying that people who take issue with the anti-journalist uh, approach that the film takes in um, sort of denigrating a dead woman um, who was a journalist and uh, saying that she fucked a, a source for a fake story who took down an innocent man's life is it's just repulsive. It is the entire thing is an abomination. Um, and yeah, like I was saying, they even have a scene where, while they're like doing interviews to kind of like build their false case against Richard Jewell, um, they go to visit like the dean of a college where he was once a student, 
and like the the choices that are made in casting this dean are pointed like he is like this frail little old like like this very like weak looking a feet white man in a little like bow tie who's like well yes he certainly seemed to be a troubled young man oh god um like it is just like it is such uh it is just it is just awful it is just clint eastwood with such a slant on this story and you know it feels like it's ultimately meant to be a, a parable about trump you know it feels like it's meant to be a is a trump era parable um in which the media and the fbi are in cahoots together to bring down a perfectly good white man who was actually doing something heroic but who was misunderstood and somehow castigated as a villain when really he was a hero so like it is i i fucking hate this I'm so, and I, I know I said I was mad at the cast of The Dead Don't Die. I'm really not. I'm, I, I get why you sign up to do a Jim Jarmusch movie. <laughs> but to anyone who actually, anyone who read the script of this movie and then still went and did it, and that's Olivia Wilde, that's John Hamm, that's mm. Sam Rockwell, and Kathy Bates, Paul Walter Hauser, I can't believe that they did this. It is, it is an abomination. It is so appalling and so offensive. Fuck this movie. Fuck Clint Eastwood. Ooh. I'm on board. Sounds like a nightmare. I was wondering how he was going to get his little pause on this. It seemed like it was going to be a pretty straightforward story until I heard about the angle um, yeah. you mentioned. And yeah. it's unforgivable. No. I mean, the, the power of the voice you have making a movie like this to take an, an innocent person who is not here to defend mm-hmm. themselves is um, it's unnecessary. Yeah. And Richard Jewell also, incidentally, is deceased, and, deceased. Is, and is not here to defend himself. So it just kind of begs a question of like, why even? Why make the movie? Like you know, like obviously, and, you know, obviously there are movies made about people who are dead all the time. No, but sure. you know, but you know, it's just still weird. And this was a very recent story. This only happened twenty some years ago, mm-hmm. and yet somehow both of the key players are now dead, and now we just have the screenwriter Billy Ray, with name I don't trust. Um, <laughs> and Sounds Cl- like he's up to something. And Clint Eastwood to fashion it to suit their political narrative, which is one that supports, um, you know the darkest, most oppressive regime in human in U.S. history. So. I mean, why would you take a story, why would you make a movie um, that you need to manufacture this angle to it? Yeah, I mean, like, I, it, I get, it's an interesting story. Obviously, it was a tabloid story at the time. And, you know, we all talked about it. Uh, so, and I think there probably is an interesting story to be told here. And I get that if you're making a movie, you also want to add that kind of moralizing of like, well, who's the good guy and who's the bad yeah, guy? Yeah, well, the bad guy is the guy who put the fucking bomb there, who had bombed abortion clinics and um, gay clubs mm-hmm. and um, written these fucking manifestos of the same ilk. Right. And so somehow, and that is, you know, when you put it that way, it really makes it all the more crystal clear how heinous this is, that this is a story about white domestic terrorism. It is. That is somehow in which the the actual white domestic terrorist is left hook entirely and the villains are the fbi and the media fucking crazy it is wow 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 yeah i'm i'm i can't say anything else about it i just can't i just hope that like people double feature this with bombshell (laughs) yeah yeah that would be an interesting double feature for sure Um, it's the sympathy for the double (laughs) double feature (laughs) Um, I'm glad I didn't see it. Um, I think that now it's time. You deserve it. I deserve it. Let's talk about cats. Meow. Whew. So Rebecca saw this before I did. And Weird, huh? Yes. I didn't think I was going to see it at all. And I believe your one sentence review to me was 
I have looked into the face of Satan. Uh, I have. Um, I did. Um, I was prepared for some awfulness. I wasn't intrigued by the trailer enough to want to go see it. I had made, I had told my girlfriend, I will go see it with you if I can get drunk first <laughs> so I won't drive and we can go to a theater where, um, let's go to the theater in Oakland near my house um, where maybe there'll be some, I don't know, it'll be more crowded and it won't be like an Alamo strict no talking rule and maybe people will think it's funny and I can be a little rowdy. Then I got sick and I couldn't drink. And then I looked into the face of the devil himself. Oof. And not in a Hail Satan way. No, no, not in <laughs> After looking way. into it, you did not say Hail Satan. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I said, what have I done? Yes. You saw this sober as well? Um, no, I, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't sober, but I was Salt Lake buzzed, which is a different kind of buzz. That's all low proof alcohol? Yeah, all, all, all low proof alcohol and high sugar mixers. <laughs> uh, so I was like, so it was more of a sugar, I had more of, I was more of, I had like a sugar crash going on when I, when I was watching this movie. Oh no. Because I just had two of what passes as a Manhattan, um, mm. in, in Utah. Did you know about cats before you saw this movie? Like the... I didn't know much about cats. I mean, I've always been aware of the long running show and I've always been aware of the sort of like weird kind of complicated reputation it has of like, clearly it's been long running and there's also, there's a lot of people who keep paying to see it, but it's also not taken seriously mm -hmm. um, as like a good musical. And it's known for, you know, the one song memory mm -hmm. and, and nothing else. And uh, so I didn't know anything about the story. And, uh, and I, so I felt like I was not doing my due diligence and I saw the movie and I realized there actually is no story. Mm -hmm. So I, there was no due diligence to be done because there's no story. None whatsoever. No. Uh, what, did you know anything about the show before? No, I okay. think, you know, we're in the same place where we saw the commercials yeah. all growing up. Um, but like I'm not commercials. a huge musical person. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, I don't know. I didn't look it up at all. Yeah, um, this, I was, you know, this is one of those things where, you know, we all know where we were when the trailer for this first came out. <laughs> and um, because, I mean, just on paper, it didn't look like it was going to be bad because it's it's directed by Tom Hooper, who is an Oscar winner for The King's Speech, who also made Les Mis, mm -hmm. which was, a, a you know, not a, not a universally loved movie musical, but certainly it was an above average one. And it was also an Oscar winner for Anne Hathaway won an Oscar mm. for that movie. Um, and then you look at the cast here and you have more Oscar winners. You have Jennifer Hudson, you have Judy Dench. Um, you know, you have a, a mix of sort of like those kind you know, like kind of classic actors like Ian McKellen, you have James Corden, Rebel Wilson, you have cool musicians like Taylor Swift and Jason Derulo. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, so you're like, yeah, like this is gonna be this is gonna be a good time. What can go wrong? And then we saw the trailer, and it was like, oh, everything, everything can go wrong. And it wasn't an easy fix, like with a Sonic movie, where all they had to do was fix his teeth. <laughs> uh, it's unclear. Um, and eesh. I mean, it seems like this is also a victim. You know, just to give a note of of, of solace to Tom Hooper. It seems like this is a movie that was a victim of a studio setting an inflexible release date. Mm -hmm. um, because when they had the premiere the week before release, when Tom Hooper introduced it, he said that he was quite literally f doing, he was editing it until hours before. Like he edited, he was, he was still working on it until the absolute true final minute where they had to just finish it so they can put a fucking print of it together and screen it at the premiere. Here's what I don't understand about that. 
since there is no story, um, <laughs> what editing needs to be done? Well, it's not it's, just editing; it's everything. It's everything in post production. You know, and, and, right? So it's just it's the the technical. Because I think you probably saw. Mistake. Oh, I saw. You saw the original cut before they even sent out the new version. I saw. I saw Jason Derulo's fishbone necklace dissolve into his fur and come back out. <laughs> I saw the, oh, oh the collars like move unrealistically next to the necks of the of the actors. Isn't there something with Judy Dench where like you see her Oh her, her well, there's human a wedding hand. ring thing on oh, the, yeah, the there's ring. one where you see like a cuff of uh like Rebel Wilson's cat suit yeah. shirt. Yeah, see it's things like that. I yeah, think I, mean, I guess I didn't expect that to be like director editing. I expect that to be like a bunch of animators. Well when studio. you're the director you're overseeing yeah, so. that thing. You oversee everything. And so he was overseeing all that stuff. And I think that's, you know, it's like Universal kind of did this to themselves by being mm. like, this is our Christmas tentpole. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> um, did this not shape up to be what they thought it was going to be uh, for them in either a box office respect or an awards respect. Yeah. Um, you know, because now they have one of the most Ballyhooed movies of, of all time on their hands. Uh, you know, this movie has become instantly notorious in record time. And now it's like a now it's like a survivalist thing where people like venture out to like they're you know it's like a fear factor thing <laughs> where people like go with their friends to go through the movie and see if they can survive it and uh, huh. you know posting the before and afters which I did do. Mm-hmm. Um, boy, I mean this watching the movie, I was mainly mad at Andrew Lloyd Webber. Mm, oh yeah, definitely. I was definitely. I was like fuck that guy forever thinking this could be a show, um, but then. It seems like, you know, and then <laughs> poor T.S. Eliot has his name in the credits of this movie. <laughs> and it's almost like a cautionary tale about creating any art ever that might right. outlive you. Because God only knows what's going to happen to it. And then suddenly your name is attached to Judy Dench in a cat suit. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it's, it's, it seems like maybe on stage it makes sense because it's almost more of a ballet. Like, right, you know, right. like watching it on stage, you know, there's, no, of course, no CG. Uh, you're just watching a, a you know, cast of like gifted dancer singers. Um, you know, prance around and sing these kind of silly songs about being cats, and that's it. And I can see how on a stage that might work. Also, it bears pointing out that T.S. Eliot originally wrote his poems for his like godchildren. Like mm-hmm. he wrote them to be like, like silly poems to amuse his godchildren. He was never like make a stage musical out of these. Um, the songs are horrible, 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 horrible songs. Except memory, which it turns out wasn't even originally written for cats really the reason it sounds nothing like any other song in the movie is because when they were putting the show together um the stage show they realized that there wasn't really like any like breakout song in it that they could use to like maybe do like a song for the radio and so and um weber had been working on a different musical about um rival versions of la bohème Mm. and so he took the melody uh, from that, which oh, is why wow. it sound, which is why it sounds like La Boheme. Um, he took the melody from that, and it was like, okay, well, we'll just like patch together a song to this, and we'll have that be, you know, the big breakout song. And they were right, of course, it did sure. turn out to be a breakout song. But so the songs are hideous. Like this movie, it ruined a lot of things for me. <laughs> synthesizers. Yeah, it ruined synthesizers. It ruined cats. It ruined musicals at them- themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, it ruined sex. Uh, oh yeah, butts. It, oh yeah, butts. Ugh, tails. Um, put it face to face contact. Ugh. Ooh. 
Magic? Yeah. Just uh, kidding. I already hated magic. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Deuteronomy, so, my favorite book of the Bible. Very favorite. And now what? You know, so you very young. No more will you be being like, oh, let me open up to old dude and see uh, <laughs> see what uh, what verses pop out of me today. No more old dude for you. No out. Um, it is. Yeah. So I think that what I'm trying to say is that the stage <laughs> show is terrible. And everyone should be ashamed of themselves if they ever saw it more than once. And, or at the very least, you know, these songs are, are, are just garish trash. So terrible. The music is so bad. It is exactly what you think of when you think of bad musical stuff. Exactly. I was getting so mad watching it because I was like, this is going to convince a whole generation of people that musicals are bad. Maybe that's where I got that from, from hearing commercials <laughs> of cats from the, like the 80s and 90s. Because I, just a week before... I was talking about musicals with my girlfriend and she got us tickets to go see Book of Mormon, which Mm -hmm. I hadn't seen because I really don't see any musicals because I fundamentally don't think that they're for me and I don't like the music um, or anything about them. Mm -hmm. And then I see this and I'm like, this is fucking exactly, this is the worst, this is exactly what people think of. Yep. It is whimsical in a way that is... An, an assault to the word whimsy. It sees things just a little bit differently. It sees things just a little <laughs> bit differently. It's a fucking nightmare. How dare these people? Why do? Why? How? How dare you make me feel like I don't know what's going on? You don't explain anything. You don't use real words. Oof. What? A, how fucking dare you? I mean, you quote something earlier when we were talking before we started to record um, a review. That's obviously this movie has like this movie has been good for one industry oh. exactly, and that industry is film reviews. Twitter. Uh, yes, yeah. Twitter, Twitter, and film reviews, and film reviews on Twitter. Um, and you quoted one that said that this movie felt like you were watching a foreign film without subtitles. Yeah, <laughs> and that resonated with me <laughs> because you know it really is just an endless series of songs in which a cat introduces themselves and talks about how they are a cat <laughs> and what kind of cat they are, and then it ends with this very bizarre song with Judy Dench singing directly to the camera about how to address a cat. And then she just repeatedly says, a cat is not a dog, as if it's like this really like hard-hitting kind of hot take. And I just don't understand a look of it. I just don't. Uh, not a, <laughs> uh, oh, the cockroaches? Yeah. I mean, like there is no more nightmarish vision than Rebel Wilson dresses a cat eating cockroaches with human faces. Like that is, that is a definition. How I describe this movie upon first seeing it is that it's kind of like... It's like, it's like the definition of a bad trip where like right off the bat, you get a hint that like, oh, I got some bad shit. And <laughs> then you, but then you're like, oh, I can't do anything about this. I just have to ride this out. And so you just like, you just sit back and kind of like, you know, like clench your teeth and you're like, okay, here we go. And like at no point does the movie ever let up. Like it isn't, there are no, no. points where I would, I, it's not like I would be like, oh, it's fine. It's all bad. Except no, it's Mm-mm. all bad. Like even Jennifer Hudson does, you know, her best singing memory. And, fucking but, snot-faced. Everything is disgusting yeah, yeah. in this movie. Everything She's is gross. She's got full Viola Davis, like, runny nose going on. And it is bizarre to see. And again, any power that could have been engendered by Jennifer Hudson singing Memory, which she does in a very emotional, very broken voice, is undone by the fact that she's dressed like a fucking cat! <laughs> Although she's the only cat that had the appropriate amount of fur. She did. She did. Um, and then <laughs> some reviewers said like she like crawls around like a cat with stage four cancer. Uh, <laughs> yeah, why is she the only cat on all fours? I know. That's the thing. Like Most of them are walking around on their hind legs the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, fucking commit. This movie is torture to the audience. It does yeah. subtle things to make you feel like you're crazy. It doesn't explain the word. It uses words that aren't real, but it doesn't explain. And they sound enough like real words that right. you like. Is Are they saying an- angelical? Right. The entire movie is built around the word jellical. Which isn't a word. Which is not a word. 
And no one tells you that. No. Um, and like it all, like it's literally the word you hear the most. And, you know, all oh, these is something called the Jellicle choice. But you're like, well, again, what is Jellicle though? <laughs> and then the thing with the place that I, you don't remember where the word is and then the balloon. Uh. But I think that I think everything that's been said about this movie has been said. Um, yeah, yeah. The thing that we need to decide is whether or not this is something that you we um, is this a bad movie that you would revisit? Is this the kind of thing that you get together like Showgirls, and you just have these like annual cult screenings of it, uh, or like Rocky Horror, or you know like is this the kind of cult movie that's going to um, lead to repeat viewings and ongoing cult fandom, or is this just an abortion? Uh, that we just leave where it is and never speak of it again, except for in hushed, fearful tones mm, mm-hmm. to warn of it ever happening again. I am more in the latter camp. I would never want to watch this again. Mm. I would never want to watch this again. This was so unpleasant. <laughs> I, I, it was like, I, I think I literally, I was like dissociating from my body when I was watching it. <laughs> I was like astral projecting over the theater. Remember when I told you that I, I wasn't, going to be drinking and you said well maybe you should take acid can you imagine now i mean i'm sure like the rebel wilson cockroach scene you would be like oh it's this is like the most intense acid i've ever taken uh this is too much i'm quitting drugs (laughs) this is a scared straight movie quitting movies (laughs) yes (laughs) i'm quitting leaving the house (laughs) like this yeah um so what about you what do you think i think um I would go see I, I do want to go see this movie with people that I know that have not seen this movie like in theaters though uh yeah I think for me part of it was the powerlessness of being in a theater I, like oh but the the feeling the camaraderie with other people when you would hear like a huh or like a <laughs> when you hear people like laugh at the inappropriate times and then <sighs> you just little pockets of folks around the theater and you're like Okay, I'm not alone. I'm not alone. See, I'll die for those people now. And that's what I heard from another friend who was just like, oh, yeah, like just like the crowd. He was saying the crowd he saw it with was very vocal. And ours was not. We saw it again Mm. in Salt Lake City. We saw it at a nine o'clock screening on a Thursday night. And there were less than 10 people in the entire theater. And it was four of us. We were the only ones making any noise. We were just like giggling uncomfortably. And there were like a few like pockets of like Salt Lake homosexuals who were just like sitting there quietly. And then there were two eight-year-old girls who kept saying, is that Taylor Swift? Is that Taylor Swift? Every time a different woman would come on screen. Oh, God. Um, little do they know that Taylor Swift is on the mo- in the movie for like literally five minutes and then she's gone. All boobs. All boobs. <laughs> um, I don't think I'd want to watch this with like, I, I can't picture us watching it now. It wouldn't be fun with someone who's already seen it, mm-hmm. but it would be really fun to watch someone who hasn't seen it yet right. go through the thing. Now that I don't have to pretend to, mm-hmm. or now that I know that I don't have to figure anything out, yeah, uh, I would for- love to see some people Espe- have to figure it out. Especially the biggest Swifty that either of us know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Heidi Weber. <laughs> <laughs> Who would probably still be like, I don't know, Silent Taylor was great. <laughs> but uh yeah, I mean this is this is a movie, I mean, I I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm not grateful for this movie as a cultural moment. I mean, it is such a relief to be able to have this kind of pile on. It is it is such oh, a yeah. it is such a beautiful thing to just be able to all gather together and laugh at something like this. Um, it's really it's it's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> it really is. Um it's the gift we all didn't know we needed um this year to all get together and laugh at this movie. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, uh, what is there? Yeah. What else is there to say about it? What is there to say? It's all on the internet. You can find it everything from Justin Derulo's milk Mm. scenes. (laughs) And and Jason Derulo has been very defensive too. He's been very, he's, he's poor guy. 
um, just the, the there's a cat named Mungo Jerry. <laughs> one of, one of the best um, like like Twitter breakdowns was how fucked up the scale is of everything. Oh yeah, I know. I think Vulture did a thing on that. Like how can I how oh, can a ring fit over a? I'm like I had my cat at home and I was like I had a <laughs> ring. I was like this is this doesn't fit over her paw. Yes, yes. And it, now why is that piece of meat? It's supposed to be like a whole ham? I don't know what's going on. Yes. Now walk me through when you return home after oh, seeing yeah. this movie and you had to look your own cat in the eye for the I first time. I was nervous. Um, here's the thing. On a, on, a, on a day-to-day basis, my cat Teacup sits very properly. She usually sits like a little loaf with her little legs all underneath mm. her. Um, or she'll curl up in a little like uh, fetal position ball. Mm. But she, she rarely, rarely splays about the way that every finger quote cat in this movie is fucking legs akimbo <laughs> licking the nethers uh that is not real cat culture it might be pope culture but it's not <laughs> it's not cat culture it's not cat culture <laughs> it's exploitative and it's bullshit um i did see i was happy teacup has an appropriate amount of fur her butt looks like a normal animal butt mm-hmm. it doesn't look like some pronounced rump Right, it's not like, yeah, Teacup is not arching her back and sticking her butt up. No, I had her fixed like 10 years ago. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, I don't need the Q-tips anymore. Mm. <laughs> no. Oh, <God. laughs> that was Scott's joke the entire time. It was just like, yeah, there's need of more, more Q-tips were needed on the set. Oh, so even gross. Though even, so though, gross. Even, though, even though the movie doesn't have the courage of its convictions to actually give any of them buttholes. No. Which, which arguably is like the third most like notable physical trait on any cat. <laughs> yeah, her butt's always in my face. Right, always, 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 always. And so they have all these you know human actors like waggling their butts around, and not a single butthole to be found. Such, such, so teeth toothless. Cowards. Buttholeless. <laughs> What a nightmare. I hope that that... Um... And you said the teacup, actually, you did... You, you found teacup to be a grounding influence eventually. Because yeah. you were you were like, is this going to be weird? Like, do I hate cats? Are right. cats gross? Am I wrong? And right. I came home and teacup sitting like a perfect princess. Uh, tail tucked under her legs, covering right. her butt. Where it belongs. Looking very non-sexual. Exactly. Um, everything to scale in my house. <laughs> no, cats are fine. This movie's and the nightmare. It's not about cats. And where, what better place to end any discussion of the year in film 2019 than with Cats the Movie? Cats the Movie. Thank you so much for listening to us this episode this year. Um, we're excited to come back in 2020, January, with uh, all of the leftover 2019 <laughs> Oscar winners and the... Uh, January trash. Yeah, the sludge that snow becomes <laughs> mm-hmm. once you drive over it with your tire <laughs> that January has to bring. Happy New Year. We love you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye, guys. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end. That's amazing. There There goes goes the the binge. binge.